hello, welcome, what's good? Hope you all are doing well today. Uh, today is August 22nd, and you are listening to Ascension Run, a podcast about roguelike games and strategy. My name is Tone, and I will be your host today. You may know me from the Tone Hack YouTube and Twitch channels. And today I will be joined by MTF. Hello, MTF. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm MTF. Uh, I'm one of the co-admins of the Roguelikes Discord uh, for the Roguelikes subreddit. I'm a roguelike streamer who's uh, been living in Tone Shadow for quite a while. <laughs> and if it's not obvious, I'm an avid roguelike enthusiast. Um, I've been a part of the roguelike Disc- Discord community since it was founded back in 2016. And ever since then, I've basically made it my mission to grow this wonderful community as much as possible. Uh, played just about every major roguelike, and I've uh, beaten quite a few of them. And, uh, you know, today I am just absolutely honored to be here talking with another pro roguelike player. So thank you so much for bringing me on today, Tone. Yeah, thank you for joining me. It is my absolute pleasure. I think this will be a really fun episode. I completely agree. Um, So I wanted to start out today by just talking about the first episode, um, because that was huge news for me and for this this podcast, obviously. Um, Whenever I'm doing end up talking about like housekeeping behind the scenes stuff for this uh, podcast. We can kind of think about that as inventory management, which is something I'm sure we are all familiar with being roguelike players. Um, But yeah, the, the reception of the first episode has just been incredible so far. And I've been absolutely overjoyed with the overall response to it. It's been great to see people um, enjoying the show and engaging with it already. I've gotten feedback through Reddit and, um, through the the contact form on my website and through Twitter and all that, and it's just been really, really great to see. And um, that when I see stuff like that, it just it makes me smile and it makes me happy. And that's the kind of stuff that motivates me to to keep this kind of project running and going. As long as I, it seems like people are enjoying it and finding value in it, I can hopefully just keep pumping these out more frequently and and keeping up the same level. So I'm just glad everyone has been enjoying it so far, and I hope you like this and continue to like it. Um, I'll also note that it's, we're now officially on Apple podcast and Google podcast. There was like a checkbox or something that I didn't have. Right. So we weren't actually on Apple podcasts at launch, which is a little unfortunate because I think Apple podcast is like the big one for visibility. Um, so if you guys are enjoying the show and you use that, um, if you want to subscribe on there or follow us, or however it works on that app. And if you can rate and review, that's probably good for the show. Um, but as I said on the first episode, I do think that a uh, podcast on a topic like this is going to be more of a word of mouth thing. I don't think we're going to be trending on iTunes or anything. So um, if you just want to continue to share it with friends or anyone that you think will enjoy it, any communities, subreddits, Twitter, um, that'll probably help a lot to help us grow and um, for other people to be able to find it and, and enjoy it and find value in it as well. We are in the... Uh golden era of roguelikes so i wouldn't be so sure about rising to popularity <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it might be um podcasts tend to be on um, niche topics and i think something like this like a lot of outsiders um just into gaming and stuff uh, might find a lot of this discussion interesting especially with how um, like the non-traditional roguelikes like all these games like hades and stuff are becoming popular and taking things from roguelikes and more and more people every day seem to be more curious about these original games so maybe this is an outlet to making the genre as a whole more accessible to other people and if if that is true then that would be um an awesome thing to achieve 
absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I also, we did get some really great questions and feedback. Um, so yeah, please keep that coming. It's just been great to see. I'd love to give as much listener interaction on the show as possible through this. Um, so I'll be reading out some of that later. Um, some questions we'll be answering and all that good stuff. Um, the best play, way to to submit you know, feedback like that or questions is going to be through tonehack.net slash contact. There'll be a form on there that you can just fill out. And it'll turn into an email, and I'll be able to email you back if you input your email as well um, and stuff like that. So uh, just let me know if you don't want it read on the, the air for any reason. Uh, but otherwise, uh, it's been really great to see. We got some great questions so far. It sounds like we have some really smart listeners. So um, that's just awesome to see. And I would expect nothing less. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The and especially the other things I do, like my streams and YouTube and stuff. It never ceases to amaze me how um, how great the community and um, how smart everyone seems to be. So um, couldn't ask for a better group of people to be listening to this podcast and engaging with it. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. So let's get into the roguelike news here. Um, and I just had a uh, something I wanted to mention here. In my original vision for this podcast, I thought we would um, – the intention was going to be for like a big part of it to just be like covering like every like bit of news that's going on in the roguelike world and – um, since I've been thinking about this podcast um, for the past like year or so, I've been paying more attention to what's going on with like the roguelike you know community and with like roguelike games and stuff. And it, it's actually once I started paying attention, it was surprising to me like how much stuff there was because um, sometimes you like see something and then you you move on and forget about it. But once you actually start like writing things down and making note of it, there's actually a lot of stuff going on to talk about. Now, since the first podcast, what I realized is I think what's like really special about this show and like what had like really worked for me on the first episode and what seemed to work for people is that like the the deep discussions that people who like love these games can have and talk about and i think that is like really the the core of at least the first episode and i think sometimes when i'm just going over like news it almost feels like i'm just like reading at you guys and i want to avoid that i want you guys to like be involved and i want like these conversations to be like enthusiastic and energetic so what I think I'm going to be doing is deprioritizing the news to an extent and still covering like big events and things that like me or my guests are personally passionate about. But if there's not like a lot to say about something, I don't just want to like be like reading off a list or something. So um, if you would prefer more news to be read, um, I just gave you the the contact info. You can uh, write me at tonehack.net slash contact and let me know how you think about that. But that's kind of the current vision for this. And um, if you think we've missed anything important or that you want to hear, um, let me know. And I might, I'll read it, like your impression and why you think it, you're excited about it. Maybe I'll check out the game or whatever it is myself. Uh, maybe I'll find a guest that has experience on a topic and bring them on to help talk about it. Um, so I, I don't want to like miss anything, but I also just don't want to feel like I'm reading off of a list. So that's kind of the idea behind that. And also... I try to curate a lot of roguelike news on my Twitter account at ToneHackRL. So I'll like try to retweet and tweet out things that I see um, in the roguelike news world. And also on my Discord server, uh, ToneHack.net slash Discord will get you there. There is a roguelike news channel where I post big news pretty frequently. And also there's a, a traditional roguelike sub-channel for discussion that I'm like, quote unquote, like lesser news. Well, I'll drop in there from time to time. So there's some other channels you can get to follow, like more stuff that we don't cover on the show. 
Um, so with that out of the way, we do have a few bits that I do want to mention. Um, the first one is Rift Wizard uh, made an announcement for its full release. Um, it'll be leaving early access on September 1st. Um, and that was a game that I checked out when it first entered early access and again more recently. And it's a fun one. So I think we'll be talking about that um, closer to that release. But I wanted to, to mark that for everyone. Uh, the roguelike community was awesome when Jupiter Hell came out recently with um, doing the reviews and all the stuff that really helps these indie developers. So um, if you guys are like interested in that game or if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. Um, but yeah, if you do like end up getting it, like rating and reviewing it uh, is really, really big for visibility and for actually making these projects successful to the small indie developers that are, are behind them um, and helping them continue to work on these games and make new ones in the future too. So I just wanted to announce that. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to play that one yet, but I, I do want to say I think the sprite work is just absolutely beautiful. So it's definitely on the list, and I'm really looking forward to trying it out after full release. Yeah, the the style of the that game is in, incredible. I really love how the mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, the the sprites came out, like the animations and the pixel art is just it's really unique compared to what we see in a lot of roguelikes. Um, and I think that is one thing that really stands out to to players who who first start playing it. And that, that is definitely a compliment I see um, very often. Um, another item I wanted to touch on is um, over this past weekend, I actually joined the NetHack learning environment team to help answer NetHack questions as they did a um, an AMA. That stands for Ask Me Anything. It's basically an interview format for Reddit. Um, and they did that in the machine learning subreddit on Reddit. And basically they wanted um, someone just to answer more NetHack specific questions. So they reached out to me and asked if I could help. So um, I've been on there this weekend answering questions where I could, or they are sending me questions um, that they wanted my opinion on. And I've been entering things in. So that's been fun to do. Now, I know you've been answering questions about this uh, already for quite some time, but I figured I would ask one more. Uh, You know, I'm not super familiar with the machine learning environment and, and how that all works, but I'm assuming the goal of this project is to kind of make almost like the ultimate bot to be able to beat NetHack and all of its different permutations? Uh, is, 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 is the project something along those lines? That's one way to look at it. Um, and overall, it's like a means to advancing um, artificial intelligence research overall in general, like even outside of the NetHack realm. And um, I'm not super uh, advanced in my knowledge of a lot of this stuff, <laughs> but it's basically... Um, it's a group from like the Facebook AI research team had started this. And basically there's some papers I'll link to in the the show notes later, I guess, some information on it. But there is NetHack just has like so many interactions and like like rules to it and things to learn. And basically like even like humans can't <laughs> take a lot of time to like figure things out and um, <laughs> like learn the game and like solve problems in it. So it's a lot different than maybe solving chess or go, which has like a very defined set of rules. Oh, I imagine it's a much more complex problem. Even though they're complex games, like the rule sets are pretty um, straightforward. Um, So, and the other thing about NetHack that makes it great for this is that um, it doesn't require a lot of CPU resources. So they can do, I don't know, thousands (laughs) of like iterations of the game in you know, a very short amount of time. So they can just get lots of iterations and it's like reinforcement learning. So I think how that works is you kind of tie a, I don't know if it's like a score or like a reward to some kind of like progress metric in the game, whether that's um, your NetHack score or the depth you've reached. 
and then uh, I guess it like learns how to do that better and it tries to improve at that, um, which is pretty cool. So um, I'll be trying to learn more about that stuff um, as I go, but like all the people on that have like PhDs and in artificial intelligence and stuff, and I'm nowhere <laughs> on that level. So <laughs> um, I try to um, gain it just so when I can. Um, but uh, I guess that AMA will be over by the time um, this gets out there, but you can probably go back and read that and maybe you'll get, there'll be some information for that. Um, but yeah, I think I, I see this show up in the news every once in a while and people will like post an article on the NetHack subreddit or something and um, share it and be like, oh, that's cool. And the discussion kind of ends there just because it's that same barrier. Like we don't know what the AI applications are. Um, just like being as players most of the time, unless we have a very specialized background in that. Um, and I think it'd be cool to relate that to the roguelike players because we all definitely think it's interesting. I want to know how NetHack is being used to improve like research on like a, a real level. And so it's a really cool thing to see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think alongside studying roguelikes in general, if we can use them to improve AI, I mean, that sounds like a win-win to me. So that's super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, so basically there's uh, there's two competitions that they're doing um, later this year. And the, the first one is to have a like a like an AI or like a like a neural network or whatever that can solve this game by learning through iterations of like playing it. And then they're also doing one where you can just like Ooh. write a NetHack bot um with like knowledge of the source code or whatever, and you can like write it however you want and solve it with that for 3.6.6. So um, there actually is a NetHack bot, at least one that can beat the game, but that was in 3.4.3, which was the main version of NetHack for about a decade. And that one relied on a lot of things like Elberith, which got nerfed, and in particular, pudding farming, which got nerfed a lot. So Pudding farming was a tactic that you could set up pretty easily. And basically puddings split when you attack them. And then they give like death drops. So you can set this up where you can like farm them infinitely and in basically 100% safety. And then you get unlimited resources. So the way these bots worked, uh, my understanding is they would... They were able to set up a pudding farm early. And then from a standpoint of having unlimited resources could finish the game. Um, to do that in 3.6.6 without putting farming is is a lot more difficult because the the bot needs to be able to handle more problems early from a weaker standpoint and be able to like gain these resources in other ways. Yeah, it seems a lot more challenging to solve from a uh, from a difficulty standpoint now that some of the more uh, OP strategies have been removed from the game. Mm-hmm. And and there's one really effective farm I've seen in NetHack since uh, putting farming got nerfed. But it involves like genociding a certain number of monsters and using like summon nasties, so like only a certain number of monsters will spawn, and then like doing it in a way where it's like completely safe to do. It's it's it requires a lot more resources to set up from the start. Um, but that might be a way to get one of these bots working again in three point six point six, if you can get it further along to set up a different kind of farm, um, and then kind of execute the end game from there. Um, but the pudding farm, what you were able to set up like really, really early in the game effectively. So that was one thing that made it a lot simpler to do. Well, especially when it comes to bots, I always figure when there's a will, there's a way. So <laughs> given enough time, they'll figure out some way to break the game. Yeah, and they, they have sponsors and cash prizes, I think, for for people who can actually solve this. And they don't expect people to solve this this year. 
So this will be like a multi-year thing that happens like annually, and they'll see how much people progress. Um, so it'll be really cool to follow the development of um, this this whole event. Absolutely. And see how it progresses. So looking forward to that um, as it goes on. But yeah, the AMA was a lot of fun so far. Um, I'll probably go in after we're recording here and see if there's any more questions as the weekend wraps up. Um, answer them, but it's been cool to be able to help out in whatever way I can. Um, there's also a NetHack marathon coming up that I wanted to shout out. Um, there's very little information on this so far, especially public information, but a user that goes by Disperse has been organizing it. And they are active on the Roguelikes Discord, and they, they stream um, relatively often games of NetHack. And basically, uh, the idea is... It was a 48-hour thing, but I think it's even longer now. And they got a bunch of people who play and stream NetHack together in about four-hour blocks. And now it's basically a continuous NetHack stream for the the whole weekend uh, with no interruptions. And we're going to be trading off characters and continuing them. Um, it's going to be for charity. I don't know if they chose one yet. Like I said, it's all very early still, but I wanted to plug it because it's going to be starting on September 10th. And I'm told that the website nethackathon.org will be <laughs> up by the time this episode is out. So that should have more information and a schedule and stuff on there. And just due to how timing worked out, I actually will be the one that kicks it off. <laughs> so right. no pressure. Um, I think that's on Friday the 10th at 1 or 2 p.m. Eastern in my time zone is when that should be. But yeah, like this will be... 24 hours a day, um, continuous uh, marathon. They're going to do some speedrun blocks, um, like how Luxadream had been doing like little speedrun races uh, streams every once in a while. So they're going to be uh, maybe four players or so, and there'll be like a semifinals and then like a finals. So that'll be a lot of fun to see. Um, it's a really cool event, and uh, props to Disperse for organizing it and for everyone else that's going to be participating in it because um, there's a lot of people that are needed to fill all those blocks. So um, very, very cool to see. I'm excited to partic- participate in it myself and see how it plays out. So that'll be on September 10th. That'll be the Net Hackathon. Yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic idea. I mean, Tone, we, we've seen how successful your, your round-robin plays with, uh, with NetHack have been just across your Discord. So, you know, I think it's going to bring a lot of enjoyment to the community, especially now that the whole thing is going to be broadcasted. And, uh, I mean, I can't think of a better person to to kick it off. So should be really interesting to watch. Yeah, I think that Round Robin account I was doing, and Round Robin is basically a similar idea to this where you multiple people play on one account and trade off um, the the character. I think the one that's going on my Discord, which has been a little slower lately, is up to. I think it just got the Book of the Dead, so it's about to. It's getting ready to grab oh, the wow. amulet and ascend. So if anyone wants to pick that up and and play a bit and maybe um, re-engage enthusiasm on that, um, it's organized on the Discord, and it'd be fun to actually see that get an ascension here. Definitely. Um, but th- those have been fun. We, I've been doing them with Brogue as well, and it's a great way for new players to like learn the game because they're. Um, there's usually experienced players like, you know, quote unquote, like invested in the game and, uh, they can at like watching it and you can ask them questions about like how they would play things or even see how they'll play it. If you just drop off the character and <laughs> let them pick up right. and for an experienced player, um, you get thrown into a new novel situation every time you pick it up you kind of have to see what the last player did and they'll often be doing things that you wouldn't normally do yourself. So um, you get to like try different things and it's just like a fresh way to experience the game. 
not to mention, you know, as a newer player, you might pick up the game uh, in a place that's much further than you've previously gotten. Uh, so you get to avoid a lot of the early game pitfalls and start experiencing part of the game that you haven't been able to yet, which could be really exciting. Yep. So. And and one thing I see from a lot of players who want to engage in these round robin accounts is they're like afraid of like dying, but like that's if if you get the opportunity to play in one of these, and like I said, I have two running on my Discord, one for NetHack and one for Brogue. Do not worry at all about uh, people or like killing the character because like starting like a new run and stuff is is a big part of the fun as well. Um, and we don't want to discourage anyone from playing in those, so definitely don't like be worried about that. It's just part of the the cycle for a roguelike. Um, and it's more than okay. You know, plus, as we'll as we'll talk about later, losing is fun. So <laughs> Yep, absolutely. Don't be afraid. Um, so that's all I've got for news here. So let's talk about what we have been playing. And um MTF hasn't been able to play roguelikes lately, so I invited him onto my stream yesterday to play Cogmind. Um, for the first time in quite a while, um, for him, I know, and basically I was manning the the controls and we were cooperatively making decisions as far as um, how we were playing the game and what our long-term strategies were, and I was kind of giving MTF the leeway to to do some of the bigger decisions, um, but we've, it was really a cooperative thing. And Cogwine just has like a lot of little decisions and big ones. So it was a really fun thing to do this way. And oh yeah, yeah. I'll just give you the floor. Um, how did you think the stream went? How was that experience overall? Um, what did you think? I, I thought it turned out, you know, even better than I was expecting. Um, I've uh, I've always wanted to effectively tag along with Tone before, you know, at least do some some co op adventures and some roguelikes, but. Turns out Cogmind is just the perfect game for this, uh, for exactly the reason you mentioned. There's tons of decisions to make along the way, and it's one of those games that has so much variety. Uh, you know, there were multiple times through our run yesterday, which isn't finished, by the way, uh, that could have gone in a number of different directions. So being able to talk it over with each other, come to a conclusion that seemed reasonable, and then actively see the build progress and move forward through different challenges is just it's just so much fun. Um, you know, I, I want to mention that, you know, I haven't been able to play roguelikes for, for about six months now because I have been experiencing some injuries with my hands uh, and, and using a keyboard is what uh, was making it worse. So it's been a, it's been a bit of a drought for me. And, you know, I, I had almost forgotten just how much I love engaging in these games and, and with the community. So it, it was just overall you know, at excellent time. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad I was able to, to help reintroduce you, reacclimate you to these games that you clearly love. Um, and yeah, both me and MTF are, are huge fans of Cogmind. We collectively, huge. I'm sure, have at least a thousand hours in the game. Um, you you might a have a thousand on your myself. own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have six or 700 hours in the game, like just documented on Steam. So. Uh, we have both played it a lot. It's a it's a really great game. So um, I guess we'll kind of talk about how that stream went because it's been a really fun run so far. Uh, just to give people a uh, a brief on Cogmind, um, it's basically a game where you're playing like a, a robot and you build your robot out of parts you find on the floor. You kind of make like a mech warrior or like a mech kind of thing where you can choose treads or legs or like you can fly. 
or have hover units or like wheels and you can pick what kind of weapons you have like big cannons or like lasers or whatever you want and then you have like all kinds of like utilities you can equip and some of them will like you can have like sensors to see if bots are around or like things that will detect traps for you things that will help you like hack um like machines better there's like terminals and different like machines you can interact with um so it's a lot of fun and like you don't have like a solid like a a set build like your build is just like the sum of the the parts you equip um so you can like kind of change things like as you progress and find different parts and like end up playing like two different builds from the start of the game and the end of the game and and stuff like that and and that's why like all those like little decisions are a lot of fun to talk about while we were doing this um this crossover stream um so that's kind of the the gist of cogmind it's got a it's got like a heavy sci-fi theme and uh you know i i think it's one of the games one of the roguelikes with the best lore out there amongst them and uh you know as a result you really start to immerse yourself in this situation where you're you're kind of on your own you're a robot where everyone around you is against you well almost everyone and as a result you have to really try to figure out how you can use every little bit of of garbage or scrap to your advantage uh, to come back and, and take on a, an almost overwhelming enemy. Uh, so it, it's it's just really fun to put together all of the different ways that, that you can go about doing that, whether you're killing stuff, whether you're stealthing through things and basically playing a secret agent, or uh, you know, you're building an army of friends to do all the dirty work for you. There's a lot of different options, and I, I think it's just one of the best roguelikes because of that. Yeah, it has a lot of variety, and that's definitely one of the things I like about it. Um, so oh, yeah. yeah, we did that, and just coincidentally, the developer dropped a new um, pre-release test build just the night before, so we got to play on that. Um, basically, it's still in early access, but it's it's like it's it's past like 1.0 basically. Um, but it's like it feels like it, but it's still being developed, so it hasn't been fully released yet. It's a very very complete game. I wouldn't let the early access tag. I'm turning one off, but there's a pretty big. Um, update in the works right now and it's been this update's been going on since like at least the beginning of this year it's it's one of the biggest updates the game's ever seen and um people who subscribe to the developer on patreon get access to these test builds and then they can try them and then the developer can grab uh like data and feedback on that and help it balance the game before releasing it to a wider audience basically um, so that's what we were playing on, and this one was pretty cool. They added some new bot types, which is uh, which is cool because you don't see new robots introduced to the game very often. There's a pretty set like hierarchy and tier and like roles for the robots, and these are the enemies. Um, so they're more specialists, which were a robot type that was kind of rare before. They'd come out in special situations, and they're some of the more interesting they had some bots. Spawns, yeah, they had some spawns, but not too many situations would you run into them like maybe you'd see them in in some of the branches like caves uh but generally you wouldn't see them in the main complex which is where most of the game takes place so now it seems like they are quite a bit more common yeah and there's there's more of them too like more versions of them they always had cool builds Um, and there's also cutters which are flying bots that have like (laughs) 
like rotary saws attached to them and they'll like come up to your your robot and and they'll they'll cut you to pieces which is a lot of fun they have like this overloadable prop um, propulsion like these flight units which like you can turn them on to like go faster and be more evasive but it like burns out the parts so like they'll fade away but these are like enemies so they don't care they're almost like sacrificial so they'll like speed up to you real fast and cut you to pieces is kind of what the the idea is behind them and those guys are are kind of tailored to deal with faster robots yeah, if you've uh, if you've played Half Life Two, uh, think Manhacks, but with rocket launchers on them. <laughs> Pretty scary. Yeah, and both of these are related to a another new robot type that was added um, in an earlier test build of this beta, um, which are called Heavies. And the idea behind the Heavies is they're kind of like an area denial type of robot, and mm-hmm. they're just like set at certain points in the map, and they don't move. And they have a radius around them where I believe they actually cloak enemies or like other enemies from your sensors. And yep. they, when you're in that area, they'll send enemies to you. Like they'll summon more reinforcements. So these new, these other new robot types that just got added are reinforcements that are specifically sent by the heavies. And the heavy will send the one that um, works best against your builds. So the cutters are made for faster builds which can normally just like speed away from other types of robots. And then like the, I guess the specialists will handle other builds. I don't know if they still summon other kinds of robots. They probably do. Um, but that's kind of what they're related to. Um, so that heavy robot type is pretty interesting in general as well. And the heavies are pretty scary. They're, they're really tanky and they have like these, these big cannons that do a lot of damage. And um, yeah, so that that's pretty cool. So we actually didn't get to engage with those aspects too much on the stream yesterday. No, we didn't. We we, we were hunting the heavies because one thing that they have is the active sensor suite, which is a it's a three slot part. So you have like a certain number of slots. So that's how like many parts you can equip. That's how they're balanced. Yeah, exactly. And and something that is three slots is really rare. There's only a few items that are more than two slots. And even like items that are more than one slot are pretty rare to begin with. Um, but mm-hmm. the reason that this is like that is because it's like a do-it-all sensor package. And normally to like get like your sensors online, you need like the sensors themselves. And then if you want to do it better, there's like processors that like give you better information on what you're detecting with the sensors. Um, so this is like a, a package that like does all of that and it's um, low mass. So you can support it on a lighter build, like the different kinds of like prop propulsion you can have. I'm give you like a different levels of support. So like your treads can like carry like heavy armor and stuff, but like your, your fast speedy flight bots can't carry that much. So it seems to work well for them. And we had chosen to play a flight build on the stream. So we thought it would be cool to, to check this out. So we were going heavy hunting early on and we, we found one in one of the early branches on like the first level that could appear. And we were still playing like a combat build. We were going to transition to flight a little later because flight doesn't work that quite as well on like before you get uh, more slots to invest into it. Yeah, it's a lot easier to start up flight once you get to the mid game because uh, flight is pretty fragile. And especially in the early game, if you lose a key part, well, all of a sudden you're dragging on the floor and that's not so good. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty common to, to play like a more combat focused build early on, even if you plan to play flight for most of the game. So we, we found the heavy and we... We like geared up. It's actually pretty funny because <laughs> how you 
approach them since they summon reinforcements while you're in their range. We were playing this like really slow build because we just like had a bunch of like heavy parts on, particularly storage, which gives you a lot of inventory is pretty heavy. And we're like, so we don't want to like walk up to this thing at like a snail's pace and just have it like summon like tons and tons of reinforcements on us, like while we're just trying to like get close to it. So we yep. wanted to, we like took off like half of our equipment just so that we could be a little bit faster. And we like charged it. And once we got like in front of it, we put everything back on and like geared up to fight it, which actually worked incredibly well. I, I think we only yeah. got one reinforcement called on us. I was expecting a lot more than that. Yeah, I mean, picture picture a naked tank, like only treads, just hauling ass t- towards this enemy, and then all of a sudden stopping and just p- slapping a bunch of parts on it and turning into a killing machine. Yeah, just that's like, basically what our strategy was. Just suddenly doing like the transformer thing and like growing like cannons and like <laughs> yeah. armor and stuff like that. <laughs> we had to like take Pretty off our, our power supply, so we were just like draining energy, like as we were like charging towards it because we couldn't like right. we couldn't fuel our our treads. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. And so we, we got up to it and we, we really wanted this um, active sensor suite. And and by the way, the, the acronym for that is ASS, which is just hilarious because the community um, <laughs> uses acronyms to talk about a lot of parts and different things in the game. And I don't know. Because we're all childish, really. Yeah. So <laughs> just talking about this thing has just been hilarious. So we were trying to get the ASS. Um, so we could support our, our flight build later and like ch- engage with it because it's like a new part of the game. That's um, it's a new item that's been introduced in this beta, and neither have really used it yet. So we get up to it. We we put our tank together. We're ready for combat, and we shoot at the thing. And our our first gunshot sniped off the ass, <laughs> which was sticking out too much. Clearly, yeah that 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 ass was just a little bit too big, I guess. And we, we shot it right <laughs> off of them, which, which means we couldn't get it because how it works is the, all the robots in this game are built of parts. And if you kill them, you can get some of the parts and use them yourself. And that's what we wanted to do. Um, and it was really unlikely because the ass is like items have like different sizes. And that's basically how likely you are to hit them when you uh, attack something in Cogbind. And this one was like, I think someone said it was like a 2% chance. Like you hit it. Like if you hit the enemy, and then yeah, low coverage. we rolled a, a crit, which was just like a couple percent with the item we had. Um, and we sniped it right off with the crit, which just like instantly destroyed it. So that was like, it had to be like a fraction of a percent <laughs> for that to actually <laughs> happen. And it just happened the first time we like shot the thing. So we, we did not get the ass that we were, we were trying to get. Very unlucky, but it happened in a pretty humorous way. So can't be too upset. Mm-hmm. But we actually handled that thing pretty well um, for the rest of the combat, which I, I, I thought that was going to be like a, a big cost to even like attempt getting that. Um, but yeah. we, we managed to kill it without um, suffering too much damage. I did think it was interesting that the one reinforcements we saw wasn't one of the new bot types. Um, I'm not sure if maybe that's something that occurs further into the complex, like on, on higher levels. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we seem to pretty much luck out in terms of how the combat with the heavy itself went and then dealing with the actual reinforcements that were called. Uh, it all seemed to go very smoothly. So, Yeah, maybe the, the robots, the new reinforcements are higher tier or something. That's um, possible. I'm not, I'm not really sure how that mechanic works yet. And then we actually didn't run into a heavy for the rest of the game <laughs> so far. We're, we're about at the halfway point of the, the we, game. We heard they, they were rotating, uh, which is a, apparently a mechanic where the heavies that are stationed across a particular map all like, you know, pull their sticks out of the ground and start moving in a rotation. 
Uh, I guess the idea is they're trying to catch bots that might be in between the heavies' uh, range of view uh, by you know catching them when they start to move. But even even during the rotation, we still didn't see one. So I, I'm not really sure what's going on there. Maybe we're just really sneaky. Yeah, I guess so. Sneaky or lucky. <laughs> I'll take either one. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, the rotation's pretty cool. You get this big like global announcement like on the like the lo- the level you're on. It's like heavy rotation in progress, and they all just get up and like start like moving into a different point, um, and then they sit down. So you have to like try to avoid them during that as well. Um, that's one of the things that's really cool about Cogmine too is that the 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 world is like indifferent to the player, uh, and like you can just like sit there and like hold the wait button, and the the whole you're in like a a complex. And it'll like interact and like do its own thing. There are robots running around that like clean up debris. There are ones that like build things. Um, and it's really cool to just like watch how everything interacts like without the player um, like yeah. in mind. Um, it's, it's a very lived in world. The way that I like to describe it to new players is you're not actually fighting individual bots in Cogmind, you're actually fighting the entire complex. Uh, the whole complex is basically alive, and I'm not. I'm not going to get super into the details, but you know, essentially, if uh, if you kill a squad of bots and you cut off a finger of the complex, it's going to be pretty angry about that, and it's going to raise its uh, awareness in that area. Maybe it's going to send out some more friends that you'll have to deal with, or in general, it's going to make your life more difficult. So, it's pretty fun that uh, that balance between pissing off the complex and maneuvering through it and actually being able to control it to your own benefit. Uh, that's one of the major like fun parts of Cogmind to me. Yeah, it'll it'll react to things that you do and like tighten up security and then even like like non-player like NPC actors um, can do things and the complex will respond to those in different ways and um, oh, like that, that could, convoy. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, pl- the player can either avoid that or engage in it. Um, so it's, it's, it's really cool. Like there's just like this whole world going on, like whether you want to engage with it or not, like it's just, it's there, which is um, always good to have a game with a lived in world. Um, so yeah, we chose to play a flight run. So I don't know if you want to talk about how flight works a bit in Cogmind and why, why we decided to play that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and preface here that I am extremely biased. There are five propulsion types in Cogmind, and only two of them can take to the skies. So uh, my philosophy is, uh, why would I want to trudge through the dirt when I can soar through the stars? Um, basically, playing a flight build means carrying as little weight as you possibly can, uh, basically low mass support, but being as fast as you possibly can. So we're talking about you know, taking multiple movements per turn that an enemy gets to experience. I, I think at the fastest speed, you can take something like 20 moves before your enemy gets a single turn. Um, so the premise behind flight, and, and this is just one way to play it, is uh, you use your evasion and maneuverability to avoid the majority of combat and identify the critical moments where you can basically strike and do a hit and run. Uh, alongside of that, there's a lot of support utilities. Uh, utility is a specific part type that's uh, designed to enhance a build in one way or another. Uh, in this case, the support utilities that we use are called InfoWar. So Tone mentioned sensors a few times. That's basically a utility that allows you to see other bots through walls in an, uh, an area around you. 
Um, so, so the ass is one of the best sensors in the game in that it can show you basically everything and uh, a bunch of other information all in one part, which is pretty cool. Um, but there are other utilities as well that make flight very, very interesting, like terrain scanning, which will you know unveil the map as around you as you travel through it. Uh, there's cloaking, which decreases the range that enemies can spot you at. Uh, there's ECM suites, which is an acronym that doesn't mean anything as far as I know, but essentially those allow you to lose enemies faster if you happen to be spotted. Um, there's just a lot of really cool stuff that you can use to essentially navigate and control the complex. And the biggest one, in my opinion, which I haven't mentioned yet, is hackware. Um, you know, I mentioned the complex is alive. Well, you can use hackware to literally control it and make it do things in your favor that it normally would never do. Uh, and that is just so cool to me. Um, you know, if, if a, a squad gets sent to your location because you attacked a convoy or something, maybe not a convoy, but uh, 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 an operator, a group of bots, you can actually use terminals and hackware to recall that squad and make sure that they never get to you. Um, you can hack some other uh, machines like garrisons, which normally spit out bots uh, repeatedly to attack you. You can hack them so that the bots they spit out are allies to you, so that they're your friends. Essentially, the best way I can describe flight is you use the complex to your advantage and you run away from anything you can't control. Yeah, it's 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 really cool. And so if you're playing like a, a flight build, like if if you get like, one bad shot on you like it might start spilling like the beginning of the end for your run because um, they're so mm -hmm. fragile but if you get like this hackware going on and you become like really good at hacking like you start to feel invincible because yep. like squads will come at you and then you'll just like log into a terminal and hack it and like you'll like basically tell them no go somewhere else like there's a higher priority target here or whatever and then you can like hack in and you can like find out where the exits are so you can just like find them and leave the level and like get to the next area um you can uh there's like an alert mechanic which is like how many enemies are like it's basically how hard the game is um it scales up yep. but like you can like basically just like erase the records so that it's like you were never there <laughs> um yep. so it's it's really really cool there's so much you can do once you start like hacking and it's it's not easy to do but once you start to commit more and more slots to um, these hackware processors you can become really good at it and yeah you really do like just start to feel invincible and you can just like do whatever you want and it's a really cool feeling i mean having hackware kind of feels like having the force in star wars you know you, i am not the droid you're looking for kind of deal <laughs> mm. uh you know not to mention you can use hackware to literally create parts out of nothing uh by using another machine called fabricators so you can build your own sweet like item build from the ground up if you have the game knowledge to do so and the hackware to support it. Um, it's just there's a lot of different ways to play flight that make it the most fun in my opinion. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really cool way to play. Um, and I'm glad you you chose to to go down the flight path for this one because it's been a really fun and interesting run so far. Oh, of course. Um, one notable thing in the current beta. Uh, that's going on right now that's incorporating all these changes that we're playing on is flight got uh, nerfed pretty significantly it used to be that by the end of the game you could actually carry a lot of stuff on a flight build and you could basically play like a 
relatively heavy combat build, but at flight speeds, which just it was a lot of fun, but probably wasn't balanced very well. So it's probably a little broken. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, the support that flight gives you has been cut down drastically. So you can't carry like all this heavy stuff unless you just commit like a lot of um, slots to it, which you know hurts your build in other ways. Um, so it's it's good for balance and it makes flight more of like a specialization for um, stealth gameplay and this info war and hacking gameplay. And, and not so you can have like the best of all worlds, speed and infowar and hacking and combat and armor and um, all this stuff. So um, I, th- I think overall it's been pretty pretty good. Um, I've been favorable. Um, it's been favorable to to try it for me, but it definitely um, kind of narrowed down what flight can do. But flight, it's not fair to call it a nerf because it actually got some significant buffs um, in the same way because now it uses like a lot less fuel or energy. So you can actually do flight sooner, and it's a lot easier to make flight work. Um, so it's yeah, it's definitely a rebalance, yeah, rather than a straight nerf. Char- characterizing as a nerf is isn't correct, but a, a per- part of it was nerfed and a part of it was buffed. So um, it's just better at doing flight things now, and worse at doing things that aren't you know typically characterized as flight things. Yeah, I, I was you know as one of the biggest proponents of flight, I was pretty worried when the initial flight. Uh, mass support changes were announced. Uh, I basically figured flight was dead in the water once you got past a certain point in the game. But when the energy changes were also introduced, uh, my opinion changed completely. I I think now that flight is quite a bit more interesting and varied in the mid-game. I do think it still struggles a lot in the end game. Uh, If you don't build it correctly, I'm not sure there's as much variety in terms of how to tackle the end game there. But, you know... The best players will figure out metas that will get around that. I'm not particularly worried about flight's viability in endgame. So overall, I've been uh, surprisingly happy with the changes. Yeah, and in particular, you're referring to the extended endgame. Yes. Because there are different ways to win the game. Um, And there's essentially... Nine of them, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, But those are kind of broken down into probably like three primary like ways you can you can end the game i guess as far mm-hmm. as like um how difficult it is and what kind of things you accomplish um and so the basic win type you can get pretty reliably on a flight build and it might be the best way to do it honestly um, but once you get go beyond that there's like force encounters um so you have to figure out ways to um either avoid or like deal with like these combats um, and that's where um, not being able to support like combat stuff like Flight used to be able to do becomes a lot more difficult. And I actually, when the the first Flight nerf came out, I played a game, and this is actually before it got rebuffed to the level it's at now. Um, actually, I was able to win like the full extended experience. I definitely got a little lucky at certain parts of the game. Um, I I was like intentionally trying to like not use parts of the game that would. Actually, like, would benefit it and make it easier just to kind of, <laughs> you know, do the full challenge. Um, but it, it was almost like boring at parts to just like deny everything. So I was granted some some good tools and some uh, late game branches that I, I just decided to use, and it helped out a lot. So um, that probably isn't possible every run, but yeah, like you said, I think good players will be able to, um, one way or another, most of the time, pull together ways to win on a primarily flight based um build in game by the end but it might not be possible every single seed 
I know the player GJ is already surprising me greatly with some of the ideas he's coming up with. Um, so, you know, it's clear to me that, that no one person is, is the carrier of, of all knowledge when it comes to Cogmine metagames. Uh, so I think that's super cool. You know, there's, it almost feels like there's new stuff to uncover every time you play. Yeah, there's just so many like ways that you can build things, like build make make your build and how things interact. Um, there, there's always something new to to try out. Um, it's really cool to see what players discover and come up with. Um, so one subset of our our flight build is we're we're trying a build based around biomechanical wings, which is something that I never really interacted with. I've always looked at these and. For my play style and how I play my flight builds, they just were lacking in certain ways um, compared to other um, types of flight propulsion that were available at the same time. But I know that you've always been a pretty big fan of them, and oh, yeah. we're trying to use them on this run pretty heavily. Yeah, I mean, bio, biomechs, as I like to call them, are just really, really cool because you know one of the major problems with, with wings and, and flight bots in general is like we mentioned before, the the vulnerability they have. If, if you get shot and you lose a propulsion unit, that could spell the end of the run for you. Um, so this this stat called coverage basically basically indicates how likely a part is to, to get shot when you are in combat. And biomechanical wings have, if not the most, they have some of the most or some of the lowest coverage in the entire game. Uh, they as far as wings go. So. Your chances of your biomechs getting shot when you are being shot at is very low. Uh, and what that means is you're kind of using your actual health. Uh, I guess I should explain. Uh, Cogmind has something called core integrity, which is essentially hit points if you've played other RPGs or roguelikes. It's your main health. If you, if you lose all of your core integrity, you lose the game. Um, but it has core integrity as well as part integrity, which is the health of your parts. So if a part gets hit and it still has some integrity left, it's damaged, but you're still able to use it. If it loses all of its integrity, the part is blown off and destroyed. So because biomechanical wings have such low coverage, you are very unlikely to get hit in those wings. And as a result, your core integrity becomes almost like your armor. It's like core armor, as I like to call it. Because you'll have something like a 30 to 40% chance for your core to be hit rather than your wings. I think your wings have something like a less than 2% chance to be hit. It's extremely small. Um, so this is nice for flight in particular because now you don't really have to focus on keeping your propulsion alive. And you can focus more on other harder to replace parts like utilities, weapons, engines, things like that. Yep, and the, the I guess the the downside of the biomechanical wings is they're about middle tier on support. So we're either going to have to equip more mm -hmm. of them to um, be able to compete with like the other like high end um, flight units that you would typically see that don't have this coverage advantage, or you'll just have to deal with like not being able to carry as much other items to supplement your build. Run a lighter build, yeah. So I'm really excited to to see how that plays out. I think that'll be a really fun build. I think. Uh particularly in the in the extended endgame, coupled with flights evasion and, you know, perhaps some evasion utilities on top of that, uh, it's going to make it really difficult for us to take any damage to our parts. And uh, 
I'll tell you, nothing really feels better than rushing through a corridor filled with enemies, having them all take shots at you and every single one of them missing. And when they do hit, they only hit your core rather than your parts. Ah, oh, that is just great. Yeah, it's yeah. You just basically max out your dodge chance, and and then you move so fast that they only get like one or two shots by the time you like go in and out of their vision. It it definitely is a great feeling. Yep. Um, and then so that's kind of like the core of like the the long the idea behind the the build we were playing, I guess, and how we approached the game. And we, we ran into some like really fun like events and encounters during the game that I think uh, we're gonna just touch on a bit because uh, <laughs> it's the thing about roguelikes like fun things happen. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the first ones that I remember that was just like hilarious is that um, I was just kind of like musing about how um, and early on in the game there's a, a branch called the mines that you can go into and there's an event in there that like summons a bunch of enemies that will like come towards you and then like how the we were talking about how the complex response to stuff they send like a dispatch deal with those enemies and it's one of the more dangerous events um if you if you're not prepared for it um and even if you are prepared for it, it can, can give you a lot of trouble just because of how it spawns and i think i was talking about how if i wanted to like you know streak the game or just like guarantee that i won't lose i probably would avoid this mines branch altogether just because of the very 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 low probability that you get like a even while prepared like a bad role on how this event plays out um it could potentially end your run oh yeah and i even lots of uh sorry i was gonna say the lots of my uh my best runs in the early game have met a swift ending to the infestation event in mines <laughs> yeah and I, I always recount how um there's another player that goes by Valguris, who's like definitely one of the the best Cogmine players out there. I was watching him play once, and he got into the uh, he he entered the mines level, and then he didn't even like make like take a move. He just like equipped another part, and then boom, like, this event spawned all these guys on top <laughs> of them. And he was like in a choke point in the starting area. There's like only one way out, and he actually just like lost the game there. Um, and I feel like if anyone could survive that, he would definitely be one of the people that could. So that oh, like, really just like, hammered that point home. And then like five minutes later, we entered the mines and I took one move and the same exact happened to us. <laughs> <laughs> it spawned on top of us. Um, but thankfully, we had a rocket launcher, which um, clears out a lot of the enemies really well because there's a lot of them, but they're weaker. So if you have some good AOE, you can deal with them really well. Um and we we managed to survive, but it it was definitely it was just hilarious that it happened right after like I was mentioning it because like you normally don't spawn into it like that. That is incredibly rare. Uh, but fortunately, yeah. we survived, and that was just hilarious that we were just talking about it and then it happened. The timing almost felt like uh, Kizrati was in stream trying to mess with us. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, just just sitting there with the remote dev hacks <laughs> controlling right, the game. Right. And uh, and for those who aren't familiar with the game, I I, I just want to touch on rocket launchers real quick. Um, one of the best parts about Cogmind uh, graphically is how explosions look. Um, I don't think there's any other roguelike or, you know, a lot of games in general that are 2D that have as beautiful explosion uh, animations as Cogmind. So, you know, spawning it into an infestation with a ton of, of little robots that you have to kill, pulling out a rocket launcher, and then just shooting a giant explosion into the center of them where parts go flying, there's matter everywhere, walls are being destroyed. It's just, it's a cinematic experience. So, 
that's definitely one of the the highlights of Cogmind, in my opinion. Yeah, it's really cool. If you haven't seen it, look up the the Cogmind trailers because uh, he definitely shows off a lot of stuff in those trailers, mm-hmm. and it, it's all like ASCII animation, um, which is really cool to see. So even if you're playing in ASCII mode, you'll you'll get like the animations um, the same way you do in like tiled mode, and it's it's it, it's actually like a really neat like art form to do that that probably only he has perfected. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I I think the only game that really gets close to that level of beauty with ASCII is is Brogue, uh, but I I personally think Cogmind has surpassed it. So yeah, it's really cool. Um, and the game actually, I usually play it with tiles, but the game look, looks incredible in ASCII too. Yeah, it has very good tiles as well. So don't don't make it seem like uh, ASCII is the only way to play. It's definitely not. I, I play in tiles almost exclusively. So. Mm-hmm. Um, another event I recall is, um, so we were, there's some like early game events where you can get like, you, you basically like steal from some enemies and then they hire thieves to like steal their items back is kind of how it works when you're in certain branches. Um, so we were entering these branches called the caves where that would happen. Well, I should start like sooner than that. Like when we were interacting with that, we, we took a certain precaution that guaranteed that we weren't going to get these thieves sent to yeah. us and there's all these like pros and cons of these like decisions so we, there were like trade-offs to this but we decided to do it this way um and we didn't get these thieves so we entered one of these branches where they would normally get spawn or sent to you and uh it was actually like the same kind of deal i i just because we i entered the branch with armor on in case there were enemies there and then i saw no enemies so my first action was to swap out my armor for my sensor so I could get back into stealth mode. And then instantly when I did that, a thief popped out and attacked us and stole our katana, <laughs> which was like pretty annoying. That could have been really bad because if it was our only melee weapon, but I actually had a backup um, coincidentally. So having a melee weapon yeah. is really important for like doing certain things with the kind of build we were playing. So that could have been like almost crippling, but yeah, this thing just like popped out of nowhere, still our Katana before we could even react to it. And then it like ran off and we were like, what the heck happened here? <laughs> we were so confused because we were like, uh, didn't we guarantee there weren't going to be thieves? Yeah, we were and, so uh, sure. It took us a minute to like look at the stats of the thief and realize, Oh, it's, it's one of the default thieves. Like this is just a completely random event. <laughs> Uh, how did we get this unlucky? <laughs> yeah, because specifically they hire master thieves, and this is a normal one. So, and those can like spawn like um, relatively rarely. Um, you don't really see them that often, but this one just happened to spawn right there, and it popped out. And that's how the master thieves normally work. So it was just kind of hilarious that that happened, and we were all just like puzzled. Like, did we screw up like the you know the trade off <laughs> that we made earlier to like not see these things? But no, but it happened yep. anyways. <laughs> so yeah, that was and like great. you said. <laughs> Losing that katana really could have been like a big deal because stealth builds in particular like to use tunneling methodology to avoid enemies, especially in the caves. And if we didn't have a backup there, we would have been stuck having to navigate through the pre-built tunnels, which are generally filled with enemies. So could have been really scary, but luckily we were prepared. Yeah, the caves will force you through choke points, which often have enemies in them. But if you have a, a melee weapon, you can like try and dig into like other tunnels in the caves and like um, circumvent them. So it, it is like a really critical piece of equipment to have for the build we were trying to use. Plus, it makes you feel like a ninja. Hell yeah! Robots with katanas. <laughs> <laughs> the best. Great imagery right there. The best. 
Um, not long after that, we had a, another pretty cool event that happened. So, um, there's, a like a branch end, which is like where like the really cool stuff happens. And there's an NPC there called the data miner, which is this guy that sits in this like massive, like, um, like computer throne. And he, like, he basically knows everything that's going on in the complex in the game. He has all the data that he has mined and, there's like some quests related to them and um, you can like, they'll share some of their data with you when you access their terminals and they'll, they'll give you some, uh, some like allies when you leave and stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there, but one of the cool things that you can do here is the the data miner has incredible hackware that you can't really get anywhere else in the game. Normally there's a few points, but almost, yeah, there's a few points you can find it, but it's always like really rare and you'll go many, many games without like ever seeing like one piece of hackware like this guy has. So something a lot of players will do is actually attack this guy <laughs> and so they can steal their hackware, <laughs> which is a huge boost for the rest of the game just because of how powerful this hackware is. Like how we were saying, like once you get like to a certain point with hackware, like you just start to feel like so powerful like this will let you get to that point without like much commitment. So even like and early these, in the game. Yeah. And early in the game. So like, even like these like heavy combat bots can just make like a low investment into the hackware that they get from this guy and they can start like interacting with the complex and these machines in kind of the same way and reaping those benefits in a huge way. Uh, so we decided we'd play around this and instead of making ourselves better at just normal hacking earlier, we decided to make ourselves better at, just like killing this NPC <laughs> to, to, to make our hacking better, like much, much better later. So we like, we evolved like extra and evolving is what you do. Like when you quote unquote level up in this game to get more part slots, we invested them into weapon slots and we made sure that we got um, like invested our limited like inventory, like into more weapons that would be good at doing this and more utilities that would supplement our weapons to make us better at doing this. Um, so we were all geared up and ready to take this guy on and we, we had everything perfected and optimized and we charged at him cause you actually get like a bonus for like momentum when you're doing melee in this game, we attacked him, And what happens is if you attack this guy, they can actually, they'll actually run away. So you actually have to like kill them in one turn. It's hard, really hard to do. You get a single turn to kill them. Yeah. So you can't do it like normally, um, that easily, but we were like geared up and ready to do it. So we attacked him, and then they just ran away we hit their their hover unit or something twice even and they just ran away yeah. and we, we were just like so distraught and sad that all our efforts <laughs> were for naught yeah i mean it, it was kind of crazy too because you know generally builds that go for a kill on the data miner will just use like a single melee weapon and just try to get one good shot to to their core to completely drain their core integrity instantly killing them but we actually had three melee weapons and we had utilities that would allow all three of those melee weapons to potentially swing in a single turn. And, uh, and like Tone said, we got two of them to swing, but both of the swings hit other parts with higher coverage and didn't do enough damage to actually hit his core and kill him. And when we, uh, when we ran the numbers, uh, because there is a wonderful little tool developed by one of our favorite community members, Aomica, uh, called the Cogminder, which can be used to run uh, actual math-based calculations as to how certain NPCs would be uh, interacted with via different builds and, and uh, mechanics and all of that. It's very complicated, so I'm not going to get into it. Yeah, but, really impressive uh, combat simulations. Oh, it's it's so cool to to actually you know dive into and see how different builds and items work against certain bosses and enemies and all that. But 
we ran the calculation for our particular build against the data miner, and we actually had a 95% chance to kill him. 95%. So if you think about that in terms of like a like a D20, we rolled a nat one. Yeah, we, we rolled <laughs> a nat screen. one. <laughs> we stabbed so ourselves unlikely. in the leg or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and uh, I mean, we certainly stabbed our ego, uh, but uh, you know, given that that unlucky little bit uh, actually occurred, what followed after, uh, which is usually quite a dangerous event, we were able to skillfully and tactically evade and take almost no damage. Actually, we did take no damage uh, while escaping his area, so it actually worked out pretty well, regardless. Uh, because of great play, but but it was still a pretty funny situation nonetheless. Yeah, and, and that happens in roguelikes sometimes. Um, we we tried to create our own luck and our own opportunities, and we did as good of a job as we could of that. But we we got the really unlikely event, um, and we didn't get to benefit from it, which was unfortunate. Yeah, but it, it was you know I think that escape was a great example of how uh, tactics are extremely important in roguelikes and. And I'll get into the difference later between uh, strategy and tactics, but essentially small movements and uh, turn perfect plays allowed us to only even get shot at by one out of four different enemies that come after after this event. And uh, that enemy actually missed us. So we didn't even take any damage. It was it was pretty cool to watch. Yeah, so when you go hostile against the data miner, they a bunch of like reinforcements come out and they're they're really out of death enemies for that that part of the game. But using yeah. our knowledge of how they are positioned and how they can um, will approach us from like doing this before, we were able to set it up so that ideally we could like kind of lure them in and then like race around them. And there's there's four of these like enhanced grunts is what they're called that came for us, and we managed to get out with getting only shot at once and the shot missed, and it was like perfectly executed. I'm actually going to clip that and like make a little guide based on that. I think it was such a good demonstration of um, how you can do that. I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, it's something that a lot of players, not a lot of new flight players specifically, ask me is how do I deal with situations that seem almost unmanageable uh, to get through without taking at least some damage? Well, my answer is generally I don't think those situations exist. Most of the time, there is some play that you can make that will at least greatly minimize your chances of taking any run-ending damage. So, uh, yeah, that that particular event would be a great guide to show this is how you can deal with this situation and how you can maybe apply it to other situations in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, yes, yeah, so we ended the game. Um, uh, there's like 10 levels, and we were on the level that's minus 5, which is right pretty much exactly at the halfway point of the game. And our our build was coming together. We just started um, accumulating our biomechanical wings. Our hackware was really coming online. Um, so I'm really excited to see where the rest of the game goes from here. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, you know, the early game uh, for flight is mostly just acquiring the basic tools you need to to even get the, the the run off the ground, right? But we're now about to enter the area where we can really start to fine tune our build and and optimize different aspects for you know, info war for complex control for hit and run tactics. It all kind of depends on what we're about to encounter in the near future. But in my opinion, that is just some of the most fun that you can have in Cogmind. Uh, and the the later branches in the game are are the true test of 
how well put together your build actually is. Yeah, it was. This was just what I love about Cogmind, and um, this has been such a fun run so far. Uh, so yeah, that's Cogmind. That was our our crossover stream experience. We're going to be continuing that run on stream um, in the coming week or two, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. However many sessions it'll take. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, and I, I just want to say, you know, again, thank you, Tone, for for having me on the stream. Uh, it was an absolute blast to not only be able to get back into it and you know actually be able to play, but to be able to play with somebody you know that's as as professional as you are at, at these types of games, it, it made it a real pleasure. Yeah, it's really great. I I want to start doing more collaborative stuff um, with other people in the roguelike community in the future. Um, so we'll we'll, yeah. we'll have to do more stuff after this even. But that, that was definitely a, a fun experience, um, and, the, and the community was like really hyped about it too because it was kind of a surprise. Um, you haven't been on a, a stream or anything in a, a long time and, mm-hmm. and people definitely missed you. And so people are like really excited to to be able to tune in and, and hang out. And it was just a fun time all around. Oh, I had a big smile on my face the whole time seeing everybody again. So it's, uh, it's the community that really makes this enjoyable and, uh, they, they really turned out yesterday. So it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I've been playing this week has been more Jupiter Hell. Um, I've really been hooked on this. Um, so la- last episode we talked about it, and I had only played one good session since the the full release. Um, since then, I've done two other streams, I think, and then I-, I was just hooked still, so I played a bunch during the week. And it's been really cool. So it was really fun to get into this game and then like observe myself learning in real time. So I I just kind of like took a step back and just kind of observed like my progression. Um, And I I figured I'd just kind of talk about that because it's been really fun. And I'll just talk about how um, I've been doing on my runs lately and um, how my perception of the game has changed and stuff. Um, But to, to start with that, yeah, do you, you have anything? Because you, you, yeah. you're not super familiar with Jupiter Hell yet, right? I am not. I, I have I am a backer. I have played uh, a couple of games in Alpha, but I wanted to wait for the game to be a little bit more complete before I, I dove in. Uh, so I, I don't have a lot of experience with Jupiter Hell yet, but I do have some experience with its predecessor, uh, Doom RL, uh, or, you know, D asterisk, 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 RL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I'm sure there are a lot of similarities there, uh, which will be fun to, to discuss. Uh, but one thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I know, I know Doom or L is a particularly unique experience compared to other roguelikes, and I'm assuming that Jupiter Hell is, is kind of in the same boat. So, so when you say you, you, you were learning in real time, I mean, how, how did that feel compared to playing another more similar to what you're used to roguelike for the first time? So the thing with Jupiter Hell is a lot of the game mechanics are pretty simple and straightforward. Um, there's a lot of variety and different ways you can build um, your character and different like ways you can approach the game. It's primarily focused on like ranged combat, but there's like some interesting stealth stuff you can do. You can like um, like hack robots and make them like fight for you, like all the security bots and turrets and stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. there's like different things like that that you can do. So what I decided to do is each game I was kind of like focusing on one aspect of the game I haven't interacted with so far and just almost like overdoing it just so I could like really get a good feel for 
what the pros and cons of that play style or build type is. And then my philosophy with that was that now in the future when I'm playing a normal run, I'll understand when I can mix in just a little bit of that play style or like mechanic or element of the game into what I'm doing to benefit me the most. That's kind of where I was at with that. That that makes sense. You know, I I find when I play uh, a new roguelike for the first time, I I could do something similar. I I find something that I'm attracted to as far as mechanics go, and I just kind of go overboard with it. But, you know, even if it's not the most optimal thing to do, or maybe you lose more quickly because you do so, you get a really good feel for how that mechanic could intertwine with the rest of the game. And uh, I I believe that's all part of just like assembling your, your tool belt. Uh, your roguelike tool belt when it when it comes to trying to get better at these games because you need that tool belt in order to be able to deal with all of the possible different decisions that you will encounter in a given run. So that that sounds really really cool and and uh, pretty much right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the differences from a lot of the other roguelikes I've played is that Jupiter Hell runs are relatively shorter. So and, and then these these mechanics are more. Um, narrow and pointed i guess so it's not like if i was going to play like dungeon crawl stone soup and say i want to play a spellcaster this run i'm not going to get to experience like that much of what spellcasting in that game can be like in like one run but in jupiter hell for instance i was like well i want to play a melee build and i feel like i got a good feel about how to approach a melee build and like what i learned is that you can't you you can, but like it seemed like um me- like early on, like melee is not as good. So I was kind of playing a uh generic like shooter, like gunning build, um, while I kind of invested the skill points that I could start committing to melee because like the melee kind of comes on slow, but it becomes really strong once you invest enough into it. And then in the second half of the game you start to get some of the really good melee weapons. So uh, it almost seems like for at least my play style and something I know some other players do is you don't really start playing melee from turn one. You, you'll you um, start doing it um, like a little later in the game. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds pretty similar to, to Doom RL. I, I know uh, melee is a very strong build in the late game if you put it together correctly. But, you know, the majority of the build is, or sorry, the majority of the game is, is balanced around uh, ranged play. So... It's, it's interesting to see that a lot of the uh, design choices have, you know, kind of made their way from Doom Morale have kind of made their way into Jupiter Hell. It, it really is like this spiritual successor. Yeah, and kind of the things you need are things that give you speed and like evasion. So you can actually like close the gaps with all these ranged enemies to actually like be able to use your melee weapon without just getting like shot to pieces. And once you get like right. up close with someone, then um, the, the melee is really strong. If you take certain like complementary skills, that help with your damage. I ended up like one shotting a lot of enemies on the the melee dedicated run I did, which was really cool. Wow. Okay. Quite strong. But yeah, I guess how I started out with the game, like my first run. Um, I think I've only played seven runs up to this point, but I've learned a lot from each one. So the the first one I played was before the the full release, and I just kind of picked it up um, towards the end of a stream when I had like an extra hour or two, because um, I'd been like meaning to play it for months and months and. Um, I just picked it up and started playing and I kind of just treated it like 
that game like that. So I, I don't think I picked it up again for like two weeks when I had like similar spare time. And then I continued it. And then like a week or two later, I did the same thing. So across like three like short sessions that were like very elongated, um, I played my first run. Um, I started on the hard difficulty. You start with access to easy, medium, and hard. And then there's actually three more on top of that that you can unlock um, as you um, get your wins or whatever. Or there's like a button you can hit to unlock them all from the start if you don't want to wait. Yeah, so so coming from you know a, a more traditional roguelike perspective, you know generally we don't see a lot of games with like difficulty settings. So how exactly does that play into a game like Jupiter Hell? Like what what does the difficulty settings actually modify about the game for you? You know I thought that was interesting, and I've seen like arguments for like why games shouldn't have difficulty settings, um, and I, I was kind of interested in that myself when I was a, like learning about Jupiter Hell and such, because I, I think it can be, uh, there are downsides to having difficulty settings, but overall it seems to work really well in Jupiter Hell in the community as far as like, um, I've been like hanging out in their discord and like reading how people are perceiving the game and stuff. Um, so basically I don't know about all of the early difficulties, but I, you basically, you get more enemies per level and in Jupiter Hell, you don't passively regain regain health, and the the resources you get on each level are fairly static, at least in the difficulties like I've played. So you'll get more enemies per level, but less resources to deal with them. So that's kind of like where a big part of that additional okay. difficulty curve comes from. Um, also, when I jumped from hard to ultra violent, one of the big things is enemies get plus ten percent accuracy, so you're just getting hit more um, than you are in other levels. And then you basically start seeing like more out of depth enemies, or I guess like just the how earlier start seeing some of these enemies just um, happen sooner. So you'll get harder enemies earlier, um, which is makes things more difficult. So things like that are kind of the primary um, uh, ways okay. that the game will get harder. So I'm assuming going back to medium and easy um, is kind of like similar things but scaled back. And then when you okay. go up from ultra violent. So there's two more difficulties above that, which I haven't played yet. Um, enemies gain more hit points. And also, um, after that, they actually start respawning as more difficult types of enemies. Oh, wow. So okay. that's the really big change. And um, that adds like a really, really significant hunger clock to the game. So that I, I've been trying to like um, think about how I would be playing on these higher difficulties while I'm playing these current ones, because I do want to like jump up at some point and try them out. And there's like a lot of things I do where I'm going to like spend a lot of turns waiting for an enemy to like come into my vision so I can get the jump on them. But in these other difficulties, if I do that, then a stronger enemy that I already like killed might come up from behind me. Um, You're wasting time. If right. you quote, if you quote unquote gib an enemy, which is like by doing a lot of damage to them, like over their like base health, you have a chance of um, giving them, they won't respawn. And that's like when they just like, like blow up into pieces when you shoot them or whatever. It's like almost like a critical <laughs> hit kind of thing. Um, that, oh, yeah. that will prevent them from respawning. So uh, I think certain weapon types or like, you know, choosing your kit in a way that you can give more um, will become more important on there, which is something I don't really have to think about now because a, a kill is a kill. Right. That does make sense. Um, so I, I guess a follow-up question would be, you know, do you think that having these lower difficulties, while it allows newer players to get into the game more easily, do you think it's maybe training bad habits into them that 
maybe wouldn't prepare them for the higher difficulties? Or do you think that the the balance is there that they can, you know, acknowledge that these higher difficulties might have extra mechanics like a hunger clock and all that and and start to think about different ways that they could approach those situations? Yeah, that, that probably is a thing because you're going to get to a point on the higher difficulties where you can't, the things that will work on the lower difficulties won't work as well just because they're not um, as well put together. Or you're not like having as much like synergizing elements in your build that are going to be required um, to get the advantage you need on these higher difficulties. So that's definitely a problem um, or like a potential downside with that. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought about that with games like Slay the Spire, which I know you've played Slay the Spire. Yeah. Um, the the base the, Slay the Spire has twenty difficulty levels on top of the base one. It's uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, they're very like incremental, and there's certainly like, points where it gets a lot harder. But by the time you get to the top, um, I think it starts getting like really difficult. So you you can get by with almost like anything on like the first tier of difficulty for Slay the Spire, and um, it it does allow you it, like it reinforces like certain um, play styles that do not work well as you go up in difficulty. Um, so in that way, it, it's a problem. And I kind of had an issue with Slay the Spire in that way because you have to play through all these lower difficulties to get to the higher ones. I guess what's nice about Jupiter Hell is that you can start at the difficulty you think you want to or you should be playing at instead of uh, like... Yes, that is, a, being, that is a benefit. Yeah, instead of being forced to learn these habits at the lower difficulties before getting to the higher ones. Um, so that's like one difference. But yeah, there's some like reinforcement there. And I guess... One of the things is because I one of the big things with roguelikes for me is are like the communities and like talking about other people about these runs and stuff. Um, sometimes there's like a little bit of like a disconnect in um, sharing experiences and advice. Like when you're talking about like, oh, this um, build is like really cool, but it might only work on like one difficulty or and not like on another. Um, but now nowadays, I think I'm pretty pro difficulty options. Okay. Because otherwise, in a way, you're just kind of gating off your game from more players. That um, is true. And I think I'd rather have a give a player the option to play the game at a lower difficulty and actually be able to enjoy the the game than have them just not play it at all. Yeah, I mean, some players are are not looking for an experience where they play like a roguelike at the highest caliber they possibly can sometimes they just want to be able to experience the game and and go through it at their own pace their own play style and i I think that giving players the option to do so is is a great idea because like you said it's going to get more people into the genre and if they so desire the challenge the option to go up in difficulty is always there Mm -hmm. and and honestly looking at um, like jupiter hell which has like six difficulties now that's almost like seems like too many and the developer was actually excessive. wondering if they should have added, be adding another one um, at a certain point they were talking about. Oh, really? So I was like, it feels like there's a lot, but it, it seems to work well for the game right now. And and most people don't go up to the top two uh, because of that respawn mechanic, which changes like the game fundamentally a lot. So I think a lot of people don't want to just go up to that point. And that's why they were talking about potentially adding another one um, that makes the game a little bit harder before you add that mechanic in. Um, oh, which makes okay. a lot of sense. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, uh, adding new mechanics to, to difficulty levels is it's not something I've really heard uh, as being very common in games that have the different different diff- di- ah, different difficulty settings. But uh, I think it makes a lot of sense because you know at some point just increasing you know enemy hit points and decreasing the amount of damage you do just kind of becomes uninteresting. So 
adding in new clocks or, or new mechanics, new functionality, that is a great way to make the game harder while also, you know, keeping it interesting. Yeah, just making numbers bigger isn't always an interesting way to um, add mm-hmm. difficulty. So, uh, but I think having more enemies um, in in Jupiter Hell in particular, like you, and it, it changes like the types of situations um, you run into. You might get a guy coming up from behind you you weren't expecting. So now you have to think diff- differently to get out of this. It's not just like every enemy you have will soak up more of your bullets. Um, so I, right. in my experience so far, it's worked out pretty well. Um, so yeah, my first run I, I played on hard, and this was before the release, and I actually ended up winning that run, um, crazily enough. Um, but mm. back then, the game was easier, so that was an update or two before they added uh, Medusas, which are an endgame enemy, which are really scary to the game. And um, also, it had the old endgame area so there's like basically four main areas or acts to the game the the final one was always a placeholder up until the full release and that was significantly easier too uh, okay and now it's like really scary between the the new late game enemies and and how the enemy or the the end game and the boss has changed um but i so it was definitely a lot easier than it is now back then which can help contribute to me me winning there um, so I, I chose this ability called Survivor, which is a master trait. You can pick one of these master traits, and that's all you get access to um, on your skill tree. And what I had read was that it regenerates your hit points per turn. And I was mm. like, this is like completely overpowered. I'm definitely taking this. Seems broken. And then I realized that I had read it wrong. It only regenerates your hit points up to 25% of your max hit points. <laughs> oh. So at that point, I was like, wait, this kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't do much if you're always, you know, above 25%. Yeah, I was like, I never want to have, like, low hit points. Like, this is no good. Um, and the other thing that it does, it, it gives you, like a, like, a health gate or, like, one-shot protection. So if you're above 25 and then 20 hit points... Um, you can't be one shot in, a, in a, like one turn, which is pretty nice. So you at least have that safety. Yeah. So that like allows you to kind of stay at low health without like being worried about like taking sixty damage in a turn and just dying. Um, so I when I realized I, I would not have picked that if I realized that it didn't regenerate a full, um, and maybe that was wishful thinking because that would have been quite as powerful as I thought it might be. So yeah, for sure. I was like, well, if I'm stuck with this, I'm gonna really play into it. So I was already um, using like this cover master ability that gives you um, bonus to to cover, which is a mechanic in that game, uh, which is pretty significant. And mm-hmm. um, there's an ability that the the marine has, which is the the class I was playing, that just gives you like damage reduction, like like as if you had armor, but it's just like uses skill points and it's just permanent, just uh, intrinsic. Yeah, and that's actually a a prerequisite to the survivor master trade I took. Um, so I, I decided to play around that. Um, I decided to maximize my hit, po- my max hit points so that that 25% is higher. And right. I was like, I want to be able to, I have this 20 hit point health gate and at max, max hit points, which is 160, 25% is 40 hit points. So it's like, I can live in this 20 to 40 hit point range and never be killed and also not have to worry about losing hit points because I'll regen them eventually. Yeah, it's a bit of breathing room. So I have this like small bandwidth where I can operate like that. So I was like, let me maximize like 
what like the value I can get from these hit points. So I was like, let me take more damage reduction and dodging and stuff like that to really play into that. And then I, I noticed that there's this other perk called Angry Motherfucker, which is really funny, <laughs> um, which gives you bonus damage based on your missing health percentage. So now Ooh. if you take that and you're always at low health, you're just doing lots of bonus damage. So that paired really that well like a huge with huge combo. Yeah. Um, so I took that and then, so now you mostly have to worry about when you drop below your health gate. So the Marine has a class skill called adrenaline, which gives them a little, a small boost to health. But when that small boost jumps you above that, that health gate for one shot protection, that's like really significant. So, I bet. So if I took, um, damage that put me below that, I just had to pop this adrenaline skill or I use a consumable. So that was kind of like what the play style was for here. And it ended up being really strong and I, I got that win. So that was really cool. So what I didn't know at the time, because I was trying to like remain relatively unspoiled and wasn't like reading about the game or like um, reading like community discussions and stuff, is that survivor skill was actually considered to be one of the weaker master traits in the game. Um, and it actually got a buff during an update during my run, which was obviously in the works before I started playing it. So now the trait gives you a critical um, hit chance bonus which um increasing your crit oh, wow. is like really big in that game too based on your missing yeah. health percentage similar to that angry mofo perk um and i didn't even get to take advantage of that and that's like actually a huge buff to it but now it does that as well um and i, I was actually told that my run actually like opened some experienced players eyes to like how viable the that survivor trait could be which is kind of interesting um and i guess it's always funny how there's like often like common wisdom or like a meta to a lot of these games. And um, a lot of times it goes like unchallenged and sometimes it takes like a, a fresh reevaluation from an experienced player or maybe even a new player um, just not knowing how things work or what's expected and just mm -hmm. trying things um, to figure out how yeah, good something can be. And, and even as a new player, I wouldn't have taken that survivor perk. It sounded bad to me um but i until i like misunderstood it and i took it anyways and just decided to build around it ended up being like really good yeah that's such a cool thing to be able to experience by accident only to realize wow this actually works and uh you know just like you were saying one of my favorite parts about roguelikes is it doesn't matter which one you're playing the majority of them have not been completely solved i mean even nethack we're still discovering new strategies for getting through uh, you know, different parts of the game. And that game is almost 30 years old, maybe maybe more, actually. Um, so, you know, when you hear that, oh, this skill or this item isn't the meta, there's a good chance that played around with enough, that's not always the case. And that skill or item could be used effectively if you just figured out how to do so. So, yeah, that's that's really cool, especially with a, with a brand new game like Jupiter Hell, uh, to be able to change others' minds by basically fumbling through the game. <laughs> That's really fun. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool to hear that. Um, and and the, I think, especially after that buff, um, Survivor seems to be... It's it's definitely not the weakest perk. There's a few others that that class has that people um, like seem to like less than it now. So um, uh, I guess people have started using it. I'm sure they used it before, but I guess a lot of people just didn't like it. And I, I guess I had turned a few... Um, change a few people's minds on that, which is kind of interesting because I was just trying to play the game and see how these puzzle pieces fit together and synergize and make the best of the the mistake, quote unquote, mistake I made early on. Yeah, 
Yeah, I can only imagine how the run would have turned out with the buff, you know. Oh, it would have been insane. <laughs> um so yeah, I played that and then I I waited until release to play again. So that added the the new end game or it completely changed like the the final area and it added a new end game boss. Um and when I picked it back up, I started playing on the ultra violent difficulty the next one up. And so I basically played three runs on that consecutively and I kept dying in like late like mid to late in the third area of the game, which is called a moon called IO. And um, I was learning a lot each game. So this is when I was like experimenting with different things. Um, and I was, wasn't like trying to play optimally. Cause I was like, let me just try the, the melee build here or whatever. And mm. uh, basically I, one thing I realized very quickly after like two of those runs is that I wasn't picking my skills um, as well as I could have been. And, or maybe I was like playing for like the long term. Like, once I had enough skill points, I'd be like super powerful. But like, the progression was that I wasn't strong until like I got like a lot of these skills. So I was being, uh. that was being tested at this point in the game that I kept um, dying at. So I realized that I needed to be stronger, faster in order to survive this point in the game. So that was like one thing that I, that that I kind of internalized and tried to tried to fix the first thing I noticed. I think that ties into my my question about difficulties potentially making you learn bad habits. So yeah, it seems like right there, you know, the second you move up, you realize hmm, maybe I should be playing the game slightly differently, not not pushing off all the best perks until later in the game. Maybe I need some extra juice right now in the early game things like that yeah exactly and 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 yeah if i had kept playing on hard then it may have allowed me to like not realize that because i may have just kept progressing through the game um with these these builds that weren't as optimized or or built in quite the way that i needed to to survive on the higher difficulties Mm -hmm. um so i and so i'm glad i stuck with that too because I think ultraviolent at the moment is probably the difficulty that I, I should be playing on. Um, so sounds about right. So yeah, I played a run where I focused on melee, um, and we kind of talked about that, and I kind of like learned how the that system works. And then I I realized I wasn't using grenades, which are consumables that you get. So I played a run where I just wanted to like use grenades a lot. Um, there's the technician class actually gets a, a skill where they find more grenades. So I took that and I started using grenades more. So I kind of understand how grenades work in that game. And they're actually like really valuable, like panic button resources. And they, mm. they kind of need to be because they compete with your limited inventory space with like other good items, like healing kits and stuff. So they have to be like good at what they do if you're going to carry them at all. Um, so I started using those more and now I kind of know how those work. And one thing that's nice about them is like you don't have to swap to like a different weapon to to deal with the situation. You just like get to use them out of your inventory uh, right away. So um, if a bunch of guys like show up or like really hard enemies show up, they do a lot of damage too. So you can just like usually solve a, a situation with grenades. And then there's also like smoke grenades that you can use to block line of sight. So you can like reposition and stuff. Um, so I, I got to I played a game where I intentionally just tried to to use those, and that that helped a lot. Yeah, sounds like it really varies up the tactics. Um, so, you know, with with that in mind, one one question I have for you is, as a you know one of the better net hack players, do do you often find yourself uh, running into the situation where you're like hoarding 
consumables that you should be using throughout the game. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you, you weren't using grenades for a while, uh, maybe because you just didn't quite realize how useful they were throughout the game yet. Um, but yeah, do, do you think that, like, you should be using these items more often rather than, like, saving stuff for the perfect situation? So when I'm first learning, like, a, a new roguelike, the thing as far as, like, how it relates to your question here, basically, of, like, how often I'm using these resources and how I decide to, the the big missing component to that, even though I understand like what these resources do and like how valuable they are, is how often I can expect to get them like during a run. Because mm. if you're like like relying on them much more often than you are gaining them, then you're you're gonna start being in situations where you don't have them available to you. And then you're probably just going to start losing if you're kind of dependent on them to the extent that you were using them before. So there's like this right. fine balance between how often you're getting them and how often you're using your resources. And it takes like a couple of games at least uh, to start getting a better grasp on that. And that's something that you'll you'll always um, be learning. You'll never like perfectly know how often you'll get these resources, um, but um, you can get a grasp on that. Hopefully within your your first however many games and then just continue to like fine tune your you know your your model of like how often you'll be getting those as you continue to play mm -hmm. yeah plus it's it's nice to be able to hit that panic button when you need it and then you know use it perfectly and realize okay that's exactly why i had this item it was it was perfectly used so you know rather than just sitting on an item for the whole game and then finishing it and you know even potentially dying because you didn't use these items you know, use them often and early, but not so often that you run out of them. And it, it's it's very satisfying. Yeah, and the, the other aspect to that is in Jupiter Hell, you have a limited inventory. And I you experience this a lot in, in Brogue as well, which has a pretty limited inventory. Mm -hmm. um, relative to like a game like NetHack, where I often have a bag of holding with 100 items in it, plus 50 items in my inventory. <laughs> um, so if you don't use your resources often enough, you're not going to be able to take the new ones with you so if i'm taking damage in fights because i'm not using resources and then i'm leaving other resources on the ground um that means that i should have been using them more often um in order to like do fights more efficiently and i'd be better off for it so there's there's almost like a catch-22 there where you need to be using them often enough but not too often Yep. Um, and it's better to err on the side where you have more of them for other situations, but you, you're also in a bad situation if you don't use them often enough. So there's this like really delicate balance um, and you really just need to learn by experience a bit. But um, there's a lot of mechanics I come across like that in roguelikes where there's a bit of a delicate balance and like how often you should be doing something like in Brogue that we were just talking about, for example, um, Brogue has like a really tight hunger clock. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one of the big things that that impacts is how often you can search. And searching is kind of important so you don't stumble into a trap or so you don't like miss like a, a hidden room or something. But if you search like constantly, you're going to die of hunger because it, it takes turns and the hunger clock mm -hmm. is tight in that game. So there's like a balance to how often you do that. And like for that, I lean towards searching too much and getting punished for it rather than not searching enough. Because if I didn't search enough, then I probably wouldn't realize that I wasn't searching enough. Um but That's if right. I search too yeah. much, I quickly realized that I was searching too much. I could scale that back until it wasn't a problem anymore. And and that's another thing that I'm like learning every game is like 
just a little bit better, like how often I should be searching and what situations I should be in. Um, so I like to like basically overdo things and then scale back rather than underdo them and never realize I should be scaling up and that I could be like getting more juice out of whatever, um, you know, design element or mechanic that is. Absolutely. I, you know, I think that that nuance and, and, and learning that nuance is one of the more fun aspects of, of, of roguelikes. You know, there's just so many little things that you can optimize in your play that will make all the difference down the line that is quite difficult at times to fully realize, especially in the early game when, you know, you're, you're dying not because you didn't use your resources or maybe because you used all of them too soon. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the next thing that I wanted to experiment with was modding weapons. So you can get w- weapons in Jupiter Hell have mod slots, and then you can use mod packs to get put various mods on your weapons. And so that might affect the, like the accuracy of your weapon by impacting like one of the range values that it has, or it might just give um, bonus damage in certain situations. Um, it might make you reload faster or automatically in different situations. There's one that lets you swap to weapons faster that I like a lot because it lets you just be more flexible in any situation without like wasting more time. No, oh, that was uh that was one of my favorites in, in Doom RL. Nice. Yeah, that's it's really strong. I like putting that on like a shotgun or a rocket launcher or something. So I can have like my bread and butter weapon. That's good in like a lot of situations. But if I find another situation where like it's not gonna be that good in, I can just swap and just like use a shotgun to clear a room of enemies when I like just open the door and they're all right in front of me or whatever. Yep. So I wanted to interact with that. And on top of that, there's a skill that each every class has available to them. Uh, it's called WizKid, and that makes modding more powerful. Um, basically, you get more options to how you use these mod kits that you find. And um, some of them are really, really strong. And then at the, the third tier, the highest level, you actually get an extra mod slot on each weapon, which is really strong. Especially because the weapons that you get, they're like, like the exotic weapons or like the ones that are like... Um, already like quote unquote like magic items with like a, like a really good property. Um, usually you only have like they have like less mod slots, so being able to have like an extra one on those ah. helps a lot because you can just like a lot of them will only have one one slot on them. But if you get two, you get the you double that, you know. So it becomes like really valuable for that. So so would you say that these weapons are kind of like akin to artifacts and in, in other roguelikes? So in Jupiter Hell, you have base weapons, and those are just always the same for each type and then okay there's av which i'm not sure what that stands for but there's av one two and three uh, maybe advanced variant if i had to guess <laughs> let's go with that for now <laughs> um, all right so there's three tiers of that so av one two and three and that's um they just start with like different properties so the the av one will just be like a basic property but you didn't have to use a like a mod on it um, but once you okay. get to AV two and three, there's some like unique properties that you'll only find on weapons um, naturally. You can't like mod those otherwise, even with like the top WizKid skill. Oh wow! So I think a lot of weapons start with like four mod slots, and then it goes down by one for each tier of that AV that you have. Um, and then on top of that, so those are kind of your like bread and butter standard like magic weapons that like um, I'm just calling it magic to to use like a common game term. So if you think of like, you know, Diablo or something where you just have randomized properties on a weapon, that's kind of like what those are. And then beyond that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And then beyond that, you get exotic weapons. So these are like, like rare. And each one of these is kind of a specific weapon. 
that is like a special one in the category of weapon that it is. So there's like a couple exotic shotguns and they all have a unique, um, like damage range profile. Um, like how many, how like big the magazine is, so how, like how much, um, like, like shots you get when you reload all that stuff. And each one of them also has a special unique property to them. That's usually pretty strong and defines how that weapon will be used. Those weapons tend to have one mod slot. So how you mod them to complement whatever they already do really well um, can be really impactful. It seems like it adds quite a bit of variability into weapons that are already extremely powerful. Exactly. Uh, Maybe you can take builds in a lot of different directions. And being able to get a bonus mod slot on those weapons is really strong. Because now you can put two things on them to just really fine-tune them to your play style or whatever your build is lacking. And then there's also unique weapons, which are, they, they have, I don't think I, any of them have had mod slots from what I've seen. And actually, these don't just apply to weapons. Um, armor has, um, is the same way, and you can mod armor as well. You, you have body armor and helmets, typically. Uh, but there's unique weapons and armor as well. And those are, like, really rare. And actually, you're capped at how many you're even allowed to see during a game. Um, oh man okay and that's another thing that the difficulty will affect is how many of these you might see during a run so you you might run into like a lot of these on a lower difficulty run but they start being limited on the higher difficulty so you will only run into like i think three is like the cap on like harder ultraviolent you can find like you have a chance of rolling them in like a couple of the branches and then there's like another chance that you might find one um just as a random roll from like normal chests and stuff if you're really lucky wow okay that's pretty cool so I guess those are probably closer to the actual like artifact weapons than than the others. Yeah, those are the artifacts for sure. And what's really gotcha. cool about the uniques is that they all have um they gain experience as you use them and they level up and unlock even better abilities, which is really cool. Um so those are fun, but those can't be modded unfortunately. Yeah, it seems like they would be a little bit too strong <laughs> if you were able to actually mod them. Yeah, they're really powerful, and, and they kind of like gain their own mods when you level them up like that. Right, right. So it's almost intrinsic modding, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't seen too many of them cause, yet because they're so rare. And if they don't like fit my build, um, then I I don't I don't want to force it usually. Yeah, right. And um, if you get them like too late, then your other weapons might be better than those would be. Like you'd have to like level them up. Like my last run, I was playing like a shotgun guy, and I found the unique shotgun. But it did less damage than my modded exotic shotgun that I was using. And I was trying mm. to force leveling it up. And that meant using like a weaker weapon at times. And I was like taking extra damage that I wouldn't have been taking if I just used my other weapon. Yeah. Um, okay. So it was like this weird, this tough choice, like when to level this up. And um, I, I really just wanted to see what it did. And actually that gun was really cool when you leveled it up. It gained a freezing effect which slows enemies, which is really strong. So was it actually worth it when you did manage to level it up? Not for the build I had, because the way that I had my shotgun set up is I had them kind of geared up that run so I could use them at max like max range um, at full damage, which is like really, really strong because they do a lot of damage and they're normal. The thing is that it has like a lot of fall off. Uh, but this weapon that I found, it's called Denial. It's really strong um, at mm. close range. So it didn't fight uh, fit well with how I wanted to take my engagements. Yeah, now, if you had another build, and maybe if this is actually more of like a complementary piece to like a long range rifle, then you could 
break that out like when you get swarmed or like when you open a door and there's a bunch of enemies right next to you as like a close range thing but i was already using another shotgun as like a long range tool and as a close range one so it just didn't fit my my build and like the the rest of my kit too well so i leveled it up just to see what it did and i'm glad i did because um it it became really really good when i leveled it up and i didn't even see like the the next level above that but it still didn't fit my build so i ended up ditching it i see yeah it seems like one of the challenges of the game is you know a picking a build that if you happen to find one of these items it actually fits in in the first place and uh and b once you do find one that fits you know focusing your playstyle around that so that you don't you know diverge and go somewhere else with it and maybe end up being weaker as a result yeah it really gives you some decisions with like how flexible you want to leave your build um early on so i usually try to put skill points into some uh, like skills that i could use like on almost any playstyle hmm and that probably does box me out out of some playstyles because like a lot of like the the skills that will benefit like a range build won't benefit like a, a melee build. So if I found like a really good melee weapon, then I might be out of luck on that. Right. Now what some players have been advocating is just like saving your skill points for a while. And then you can like use like five or six skill points at once. Once you've like seen what weapons you'll see, like the first area of the game, ah. which isn't that dangerous to begin with necessarily. So you might not like end up using like too many additional resources by not spending your skill points um, if you play like well and tactically and, and all that good stuff. Um, kind of sounds like uh, like the Brogue style of saving up enchant scrolls until you know what you want to you know, drop them all on, which strategy you actually want to follow. Yeah, it's a really good comp. And, and then by the same way, like if you save them too long, you'll be weak and you might get punished for it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. It's actually a really way to, a fun way to play this. So someone mentioned that to me on my last run after I had spent three skill points. I ended up saving the next three. And then um, I found an exotic shotgun. I was like, let me build around this. And the play style that I decided to use for that was not a play style I probably would have specced into otherwise. Initially, right. Actually, let me reword that. The play style that I ended up wanting to go into once I decided I'd build around this weapon was one that had a a heavy skill point like investment to it to make it like work like as like this like finely tuned like engine that I want it to be. And I may right. not have had enough skill points available to make that work by the end of the game if I had spent these skill points on other like flexible skills. Ah. Yeah, that's uh that's definitely reminding me of Doom RL where you know a lot of the really amazing perks you you had to invest heavily into the the trees to get to them because they had so many prerequisites. So you know, being able to actually save those skill points until you find some direction to take it and then just invest heavily into that, uh, I imagine is extremely satisfying when the build starts to come together and you're really powering through the game. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it may not be optimal to save your skill points if you want to, like, guarantee that you won't lose, like, early on and that you'll, like, win at the end of the game. But it, it, mm -hmm. it will definitely limit your your variety of like builds that you'll play um, across like every game if you keep like using them all. So I think even though it's not optimal, it's definitely a fun option and a very viable one to, to bank some of your skill points until you have more information about the game. And I think I'll probably end up doing that a lot just because I'm very pro fun <laughs> in my games, of oh, course. Totally get that. Um, I, I think we all should strive to be, um, I know 
a lot of us do like to play these games like at a high level and and try hard and and almost like play them like in a competitive way even though they're single player and i I've, i'm victim of that as well but i also like to just try and play them the fun way as well i think this is a very pro fun uh strategy to or approach to the game so especially when i'm like streaming and stuff um i think it would be fun to delay more often so i can try like weirder things and different things when given the opportunity yeah i mean absolutely uh you know, if you've ever seen any of my streams, uh, you know, playing for the memes is a big part of my runs. You know, I, I, I try to make the best possible choices that I can, but if there's an option that's just going to be a ton of fun and I can still play at a high level while navigating that that option, I'm doing it every time. It's 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 just too much fun to to ignore. So yeah, pushing the boundaries of what kind of like weird, suboptimal, goofy, fun builds you can play, like like play as while still like winning the game or whatever is is something that i really enjoy doing these days definitely i gotta i gotta get another mega treads running in cogmine sometime to uh to really complete the memes hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah there was a, a run that i kind of dedicated to modding weapons and i played that as the technician which is one of their okay. class abilities is that they can dismantle a weapon and get back one of its mods so what's cool about oh, that cool. is like mods are usually like a, a thing where you just find them and you can either save them until you have a use for it or put them on a weapon right away. Um, this means I could just mod my weapons right away without being worried about like not like keeping that weapon even for the rest of that floor. Because if I ditch that weapon, I can just dismantle it and get my mod back. Um, so it was like a really fun way to do that because I was just constantly putting mods on any gun I was using and like without having to worry about it. Yeah, mods, I guess, in that situation become less of a consumable resource and more of like an upgrade tool that you can transfer across all the weaponry you find. Yeah, so that WizKid um, ability that gives you more um, modding options basically becomes like a a permanent like passive upgrade because you can carry those onto any weapon you're using. Hmm, wow. That sounds strong. <laughs> but yeah, there, there's like a lot of mods, so I had to like just kind of use them to like learn what options there are and stuff. And now there are a few mods that at least for my play style, be, I think are very strong to have at certain points in the game. So now I look at this WizKid skill and like these modding um, options as something that um, I might want to take in like a lot of my runs if I have the, the capacity to um, like, so in particular, I like adding fire resistance to my armor um, for some of the late game enemies, um, which are dangerous mm, okay. to do fire attacks. It, it helps a lot with them. And there's a, a helmet upgrade, which requires two levels of WizKid investment, um, which is potentially a lot <laughs> when you're when you're looking, you have these limited right. skill points and they're all pretty impactful. But there's one uh, mod that gives you bonus health when you use consumables, which I think is really strong. That sounds really strong. Okay. So if you have a build that gives you, you might have an extra um, skill point or two to play with. I, like, now that's like an instant option that I can look at um, to try and get like these bonuses that I think work really well for my play style. Um, and then obviously the third tier, we get an extra mod slot on all items and um, access to some like really strong um, options for like what uh, weapons you might be using is always on the table as well. So um, I got a pretty good feel for how the, the modding works and how I can implement it into any of my runs, even if I'm not going heavy on the modding. So um, I got to learn a lot about that on that run. Yeah, I like the idea overall because it sounds like you can use it to tailor most other builds to a particular play style that you really enjoy or you just find works for you. Mm -hmm. um, so systems like that, like I, I love crafting and a lot of other games too. 
uh, and it, it kind of seems along those lines. I, I think that's probably really strong and, and maybe a bit difficult to balance at times, but uh, a welcome addition to to a game nonetheless. Yeah, so I I've never played Doom RL, but it sounds like crafting was a big part of that, and and modding yes. is intentionally distinct from however crafting used to be in Doom RL. Yeah, crafting used to be pretty opaque. It's kind of difficult to actually, you know, determine what items I need to get to put together to make the ultimate items, right? Uh, I was never, you know, uh, proficient in any of this, really. I just kind of went by the wiki. But, um, you know, one of the one of the problems I had with the game was, you know, I had to spend so much time looking at the wiki to even know what I was doing as far as crafting went. When, you know, when it comes to Doom, I just want to get in there and shoot stuff, right? Um, so... I think stepping away from that a little bit and in the direction that you're saying Jupiter Hell has moved is 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 really good because it spends more time in the game in the action, uh, less time trying to think about you know how do I put all the stuff together that I want. Yeah, it sounds like it kind of took the element of crafting that is like using um, certain resources to like customize your items or whatever, um, but mm-hmm. but really simplifying it and streamlining it to kind of take out the kind of really the crafting system where like, let me go find resources and these will take up my inventory space and I'll need to find like more of these and um, combine yep. them to, to do this. I'm really not a, I'm not a huge fan of like crafting in games a lot. It's one thing that's um, intimidates me in cataclysm dark days ahead. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Which I haven't gotten, gotten into yet. Um, I, I will someday and I'm sure I'll enjoy it, but I just um, haven't wanted to, the crafting system is one thing I notice is very prominent in that game. Yeah, we want to talk about spending uh, spending your whole life in a wiki. That that's one game <laughs> where yeah. you'll be doing that if you want to try to craft anything. And, and I think it's because in a lot of games, and not necessarily like roguelikes, but games in general, um, the crafting systems become kind of like a grindy thing. Um, so it's really just the way that's that it's true. implemented. I, I think crafting is like very enjoyable and fun, and it's really fun to like get resources and be able to afford like a new craft like a new item and and stuff. Um, but some of the elements for the the grinding and the tedium or like maybe the opaqueness of like what you can craft um, is stuff that I don't really care for too much. So I think a lot of games that are tied into crafting, I either haven't tried or haven't been a huge fan of. Yeah, done improperly, it can definitely be a detriment to the game as as opposed to something that, you know, you're excited to go and do. Mm-hmm. I did try that game um, Wayward. It's like a survival yeah. roguelike, and it's uh, it's got a lot of crafting into it. And I, I only played it for like a few hours, but I actually kind of enjoyed um, that whole system in that game. And I thought it made it really obvious to see like what you were able to craft with what you had, mm-hmm. or like what you um, would need to finish crafting. Um, that's a game that I've been wanting to um, get get back into at some point. It was is pretty fun, but I just haven't had the time yet. So maybe I'll. Maybe that'll be a, a bridge for me to get into Cataclysm <laughs> at some point. Yeah, right. Kind of like a stepping stone. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of lighter crafting first. Yeah, I haven't played it myself, but I, I've heard it's more of like a like a Minecraft roguelike or maybe a Stardew Valley style roguelike, which uh, I definitely think there's a place for that in in the genre. So, you know, it, it sounds like it could be quite enjoyable and, and pretty relaxing too which which is great yeah and, and it actually has like a, a multiplayer system that works pretty well so you can like build a base with your friends and stuff that's fun yeah that's really fun yeah we were i was actually when i played was um with a few like people on the like that i know that play roguelikes and stuff and we had a good time with it yeah there's not many multiplayer roguelike experiences out there so the more the merrier yeah and they really they give you a lot of options in that one 
um, whether you want it to be like strictly turn-based or on like a like a tick system where if one person doesn't put in their input in so much time they just forfeit their turn or whatever um Mm -hmm. so because obviously like the whole turn-based roguelike multiplayer thing doesn't work perfectly and that's why you don't see a lot of games like that um but they they give you a lot of options so you can kind of customize that to the experience that you you want with that or you can just play it single player um and it's a 100% like a roguelike experience yeah that's that's pretty cool that you know they're mixing those different mechanics in uh kind of reminds me of the only other real multiplayer roguelike that I know of Tomenet uh it's uh it's extremely fun to play but using that tick system is very challenging so it's uh it's definitely not the same as playing a standard traditional roguelike by yourself. It takes a little bit of getting used to. Yeah, I think there's there's an Angband version. I think that's multiplayer. Um, I don't know Angband variants branch far and wide, so I don't. Oh, yeah, I don't, it, it could really be anything. Like Angband is a pretty clean, <laughs> fresh palette to for a developer to work on. It seems like. Um, so I'm yeah. not sure how they do it. Um, uh, Cataclysm Dark Days Ahead that we were talking about actually has a multiplayer mode, but I think the way that works is like you really can't be in the same place at the the same time. Like you're just like interacting in different parts of the map, um, basically, which is kind of cool because you might on di- at different times like end up in the same area and be able to share like your experience there with someone, or you might run into something that someone else had uh already like dealt with or created or interacted with and you might like be able to to notice that and and maybe like reuse their base or something but you don't you're not like completely cooperatively like playing like like shooting down zombies or whatever like from the same Mm -hmm. like bunker well especially in the in the context of like a post-apocalyptic zombie survival world it's really cool to be able to like stumble upon a base that somebody before you used and who knows where they went, what were their, what their story was, but now you get to create a new story in, in it. Right. So that, that does sound very fun. Yeah. I, I need to dive into some of these multiplayer, um, roguelikes at some point. It's a really interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One that's not widely, uh, widely discussed in, in the community. Yeah, there there is actually a uh, really great um, talk at Roguelike Celebration last year. Is that last year or two years ago? I think that was last year. Oh, I don't know. It's been a blur. <laughs> yeah, it was from the developer of Catacomb Kids. Yeah, okay. Which is one of these newer um, non-traditional roguelikes, um, and they 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 have like a lot of experience with uh, game development. They have a lot of they done a lot of projects and stuff. They've done a lot of talks on different topics too, at like GDC and Roguelike Celebration. But last year they did one on multiplayer roguelikes, um, and they were building one that actually looked really cool. So um, if I remember, I will link that in the show notes because um, I highly recommend that. It was a pretty cool talk. Yeah, I would be interested in that myself. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, that that developer is a really good guy. They they do development streams and stuff. I tune in um, time to time. It's always a, a good time. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite parts of this community in general is how closely knit the players are to the developers. I mean, when it comes to Cogmind, I, we speak to the the developer on a daily basis. It seems, um, you know, the the NetHack Dev team. You know, they used to be kind of elusive people, but more recently they have become, you know, very uh, intertwined with the community. And I think a lot of community ideas are starting to enter the game as a result, and it's becoming a better game overall. Uh, as a result. So, you know, lots of games in the genre follow that pattern. And I think it's pretty unique, you know, um, 
I, I can't think of a lot of other game genres where the developers of the games are literally talking to the players and getting their feedback all the time. Yeah, it's definitely one of the cooler things about the the roguelike community and just like how these games are kind of developed like independently and on small teams and stuff. Yep. Um, so yeah, that was I did a Jupiter Hell run on modding weapons and learned a lot about that. And then the other thing that I I I was always like aware of that I wasn't interacting with and I wanted to mess with is shooting doors. So you can like <laughs> okay, you can like shoot doors to destroy them from a distance. And one of the reasons I hadn't been doing that was because I had a lot of ammo problems with some of the builds I had early on. Um, and I thought the doors were a lot stronger. So I, I just didn't think I could afford to. And sure. so I did a run where I, I was dedicated to kind of interacting with that system of the game a lot more. And that was a huge change because like sometimes, actually pretty often, you'll have situations where you if you open a door there will be like a room full of enemies and you'll be like cut out in the open and, and maybe you have to like run down like a, a corridor to get to cover. But every action you have like three guys shooting at you down because they were like all right there at the doorway. So in that situation, oh, okay. you actually want to like maybe try to shoot the door from cover and then like slowly walk in. And if you see anyone, you can back out before you're like, instead of like running like the gauntlet to get away. Um, and that's like a really, really big part of the, my play style now. Um, and even like small things, like if you open a door, you're just right in front of it and you're just like out in the open. But if I shoot a door from the diagonal, I'll have cover to most of the tiles in the room. Um, so even like, it's almost like always like optimal <laughs> to do it if you can afford yeah. the ammo and stuff. Um, so actually I found myself like just carrying like a, a weapon with, uh, common ammunition just to shoot down doors at times. <laughs> That's that's a mechanic I would not have expected. I, I think that's been like a really big improvement to my playstyle, honestly. I'm guessing another benefit is you know you can shoot open a door and enemies maybe do see you, and then you could possibly funnel them through that doorway and maybe into another hallway afterwards where they're a lot easier to kill in a group, maybe with like a grenade or something. Yeah, totally. Um, all of that is on the table, and and then beyond just the shooting doors, um, destroying this destructible terrain when. Ooh. when opportunistic is something I've been doing. So there's like cover that can be just, you can like shoot at to destroy. And sometimes if you're using it, the enemies will like miss into that and hit the cover instead of you, but then it'll be like destroyed. So now you're out in the open. Um, there are times when you're approaching a room where you kind of, you want to clear out that terrain in case there's an enemy like two tiles away so that you don't have to like, they don't get cover as you're like, once you see them and they like move a tile towards you. Right. So I do that a lot more now is like destroying like terrain that's in the middle of a room. Um, and, and that's just been really helpful for between the doors and the terrain, just kind of approaching really the unknown. Cause you just don't know where the enemies are. Otherwise it'd be a lot easier, but kind of approaching whatever situation you're walking into on your own terms. And that can go a long way. It's just kind of like a small optimization, but it helps a lot in that game. Yeah, I mean, uh, Doom RL was a a game that really excelled when it came to when it came to tactics. Um, I, I I don't know if there is a roguelike that was as tactics focused focused as Doom RL was. So it sounds like Jupiter Hell has taken taken that a step further and is now adding a lot more strategic elements on top of it uh, to maybe make a a more well rounded experience while still being very visceral. Jupiter Hell has tactics for days. 
Uh, yeah. it, it, it has some of the most tactical gameplay I've experienced in a traditional roguelike just between the, the, the cover mechanics and like the movement and the kind of symmetrical like line of sight and all the things you can do. And every like move I make, even when there's not like an enemy on the screen, I'm always kind of thinking about where an enemy could appear from and how mm-hmm. bad of a situation I would be if that happened and whether I should be like hugging in this wall or sitting near this column. So I'm like one turn away from cover if a guy were to show up and th- those kind of things. Um, and I, I just really like thinking um, at that level. Uh, it's just like really engaging um, gameplay for me. And I, I really enjoy that level of it. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, tactical gameplay is is definitely some of the more interesting parts of roguelikes. Uh, especially newer roguelikes, you know, a, a lot of older games, you know, they have like bump attacks and stuff like that. And while that is interesting and there are tactics involved with that, I mean, Jupiter Hell, it, from what it sounds like, is more akin to a first person shooter than it is to an old hack and slash. You know, you're, you're hiding behind cover, you're chucking grenades, you're blowing up terrain, you're thinking about how you can sneakily move around without like attracting too much attention until you can really get a good shot on somebody. And I mean, that's just, that just sounds like a super cool feeling. And and the cover in Jupiter Hell is really significant. Like your hit chances for either you or the enemy is, are going to be like below 50% if you're in cover generally. Wow. Okay. So, so approaching things in your own terms and being able to get your own cover and get enemies out of cover is really significant. So one of the things that I came across like while I was shooting doors and terrain is sound. Okay. So you can actually, it's a pretty short radius, it seems like, but if you destroy terrain and there are guys nearby, they will like investigate it or like be alerted to you. You can kind of draw people out like yeah. that. And otherwise, enemies don't like wander too much. They stay on a pretty strict um, like patrol path, I guess, or whatever, or like an area. And part of the reason it's like that is, I guess, like early on, um, people will just like, get camped up in like one like really favorable position and then just wait forever until like every enemy on the floor, like eventually wandered into their, their sites. Um, so to, to remove ah. that, like their, their movement was restricted. So you can't like always pull an enemy into a favorable position, but this is one of the, the few ways that I found that you can, and they won't always just respond to gunfire or you're shooting like bullets near them. Uh, I actually, I, I just think they don't, they don't really do at all. Uh, what you have to do that I found that does work is if you shoot doors, which some people in the community refer to as knocking, which is cute. <laughs> Not okay. knocking on doors, just you know, shoot a bolt into it. Uh, but I, what I didn't know is blowing up the terrain seems to work for that as well. So you can kind of draw people out by doing that, which um, is something I just kind of noticed by chance and started using from time to time. So I'm kind of slowly integrating that into my play style as well. And it's been pretty helpful in certain situations. So it's a little bit more of like a, a niche thing, but it's it's pretty useful in certain cases. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I I'm fairly certain that Dumorel had a similar knocking mechanic. Maybe maybe not shooting doors, but making sound to attract enemies. And I remember it being particularly effective with like close quarters shotgun builds because you can draw enemies into you know the area where you're most effective. You can do the most damage. Uh, so I do kind of like that style of gameplay. It, it almost feels more more stealthy, uh, you know, more more trying to control the situation rather than just being Rambo and getting out there and just killing everything in front of you. 
uh, I think it I think it has a lot of interesting gameplay. Yeah, if you just run around shooting things without considering like the tactical elements and cover and terrain and the geometry of the level, you're gonna you're gonna lose a lot of runs of Jupiter Hell. <laughs> it's gonna go poorly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I played all these runs, um, and I, I just kept losing in in this third act, and so that was like three or four runs I played, I think. So, but I kept improving each time, and it was just cool to like notice these elements and start adding like more more tools to my toolkit, really. And yeah. uh, the last one I died, I ran into some some like late game enemies that were like really out of depth, I guess. Um, and people were telling me that was like pretty unlucky and it happened like in the first room pretty much. So I didn't have like any place to take cover or run. And I just, I didn't, I just didn't have the right resources and I could have played it better <laughs> probably. Or if I realized like how much of a threat it was, I might've just been able to like run and like barely get, get away, but I ended up losing there. Yeah. So the, the next day I was just like, just eager to like get into another run. And what I decided to do was play another hard run instead of um, the ultraviolet difficulty. And my intention there was to, I wanted to hopefully get a little bit further into the game so I could see what some of these late game enemies were. Cause that was the first time I'd seen the, the two that um, I saw that killed me on the last run. And I hadn't seen like the, the final area after it got revamped again. So I kind of wanted to see what that was like so I could plan for that stuff better. Because sometimes if you're sure. like, if it takes you a lot of time to get to a certain air point and then like you end up losing at that point due to like not having experience, and you only gain like a little bit of experience each time. Like, um, it, it's nice to be able to see what all that is about, um, so that you can be more prepared um, on the the harder mode. So I guess that's another benefit of the the, the difficulty system too. Yep, definitely. Um, you know, being being spoiled is is generally something that's like looked down upon in some roguelike communities. But I think in in the exact situation you described, where you've made it to a location, but you you know you maybe you got overwhelmed immediately because it was something you're completely unprepared for. You know, being able to at least understand that location a little bit more and think about you know how can I counteract that situation that killed me previously can really make the next run more enjoyable because you can show up, you're ready, you know what's coming, and now you can take it even a little bit further until the next moment that you're unprepared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, as, as much as like losing is fun and like starting a new game is fun and it's whole part of the loop and that's like really part of the enjoyment of roguelikes for me. There are definitely situations where I'd rather just know how something works instead of like dying to it just like to like figure out maybe just a small part of how it works. Yep, exactly. Um so I decided to do a run on hard with that in mind so I could hopefully maybe get it further and kind of just understand how these things work a little bit better so that when I play on the harder difficulty, I have a little bit more of an idea of how to deal with them. Um, so I, I played the Marine and I, I got a cool shotgun early. So I wanted this army of darkness master trait, which is basically, it makes all your shotguns really good. Um, oh, okay. And also what I did was I ended up um, like reading more since I was playing this one off stream about like branch options and stuff. So I, I ended up like learning more about the branch branches in the game and like where I could go for certain rewards. The branches are a lot like Cogmind where they're like kind of mutually exclusive. Ah, okay. You basically get to take one branch per, per act or area and there's like four or five available and everyone's not even in every game. 
and some of them have different enemy types and some of them have different rewards. So knowing what what you're going to be facing and what you can get into is like a cool strategic element to the game. So I decided to read a little bit about those um, since I was playing on my own time and I had the freedom to just like, you know, take 15 minutes to read about stuff and, and plan things out. So that was pretty cool to do as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in a lot of games, the strategic element can be hard to ascertain for the first time, mostly because it requires a little bit of experience and game knowledge to even begin to formulate that strategy. Like, you know, knowing what's in the different branches and what things you could experience there, like how difficult are the enemies, uh, you know, what what items could I potentially find, stuff like that can really, you know, not just change the gameplay in the immediate future, but also significantly further down the line. So once you go beyond, you know, I, I've made it through several levels and I understand how some of the game mechanics work, then you can start learning to understand, okay, how can I take this build really far into the game by utilizing specific branches to boost my gameplay in certain ways? Yep. Um, and, and, and learning all that is a, a big thing I like about roguelikes in, in general as well. Oh, yeah. Once you understand the, the game more, it's like a different layer as compared to like when you were a new player. And now you can start planning ahead and, um, like choosing your loot and your build based on like the threats that you know are gonna, you're gonna be facing later, which is a really cool, um, element to be strategizing around. Yeah, I mean, you know me, man. I'm I'm a branch lord. I, I'm going in every branch I possibly can. I'm finding all the cool loot, and I'm making the coolest fucking build by the end of the game I possibly can. It's just so much fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, after that and like my experience in taking different branches in my other games, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of branches I like and that fit my play style pretty well for now. So I'm probably going to be leaning into those pretty heavily um, in future runs, and then like slowly branching out to the the other ones. Um, where appropriate and as i like i learned the game more yeah that seems like a great strategy but but yeah so i i played that game and actually i i ended up winning that game so i i've i'm two for two on hard games now um Bad. but yeah it gave me a much better idea of the final area and the boss and like a big thing about finishing a game is now i have a much better idea of what you need to beat the final area and to beat the boss and actually finish the game. So now if I'm playing the game and I recognize that I have what I need to win, I don't have to spend any time or added risk, um, like fully exploring these other floors. Um, cause the game just gets, gets really dangerous later on. You'd rather skip the floors if you can afford to. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, I can like actually choose to do that instead of before I was, I didn't know what I'd be facing. So I'm constantly trying to full explore, kill everything, level up, get all the experience I can, get all the loot I can. But there's actually a point where you can probably just win the game. So you want to stop doing that and just like have enough resources to get through the rest of the levels and then to finish like the, the final boss. Start being risk averse. Exactly. So there's like a, a turning point that you, you need to recognize. So this gave me a better idea of like how to gauge that. And that's going to be a really big component to winning games going forward, I can tell. Yeah, and I, I think that's a an ideology that extends to basically every roguelike. You know, there a lot, a lot of people don't like the idea of full clearing maps, like fully exploring different levels and all that. And for some reason, a lot of people feel compelled to do so. Uh, whereas in reality, a lot of times it's, it's often detrimental to do so, especially as you get further into a given game. You know, the enemies become stronger, the maps become bigger, the, the resources you have become more scarce. Uh, eventually, you just want to start to think about, all right, 
what is the what are the ultimate challenges in the game and is my build prepared enough to take them on without you know taking on more risk can i take a direct beeline to that challenge and and just go for the win mhm and and we're making a lot of comps to this which is probably because we both played it and enjoy it but uh, in brogue there's often a point in a lot of games for a lot of players where they just decide to to make a dive to the the last mm-hmm. level and then just try and get out um, because there are lots of dangers deep in that dungeon and you're not going to be able to face fight everything. So you can just kind of take the resources you have and hope that you can get the um, ambulance of Yendor and then get back out without losing. Yeah. Good luck killing multiple dragons uh, without a highly specialized build, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's kind of like where I'm at with this is if I can recognize that point then I can just push through. Um, so that helped a lot. Um, so I played that hard run and then once we, me and you had planned to stream Cogmine this week, since I knew I wasn't going to play, um, Jupiter hell and I was like eager to play some more, I started another run this week. Um, and I started on ultra violent difficulty and I found a, a, a good shotgun early. I called the elephant gun, which was, was a lot Ooh. of fun. And I actually found that the game before. So I knew how good, how useful it was even in the late game. And I decided just to like build around that because I knew it was co- capable of winning the game. And I actually thought I was going to be making a bit of like a fun like meme build. I didn't think it was going to be like that optimal, but I just like went for it. And it actually ended up being very strong. So maybe I was wrong about that. And I this hmm. time I was interacting with like a lot of dodge mechanics and speed, which are seem to be really popular in the community. But I normally um, have preferred to do like cover and positioning stuff. So it was a bit different for me. Took you outside of your comfort zone, huh? Yeah, and it was because I was using this ability called Gunrunner, which is all about like kiting and shooting, which is really, really cool. So it all kind of played into that really well. Nice. So that ended up actually being really strong. So maybe I underestimated how good it would be, but I ended up winning that game too um, in Ultraviolent. So now I think I have a pretty good grasp on how Ultraviolent plays out. So I'm excited to continue playing that and see, um, see how my games go. I still have a lot to learn and a lot of game mechanics I haven't interacted with, but... Um, I'm getting like a pretty darn good grasp on how the game is and enjoying it. And um, if I can win a few more times on Ultraviolent, I'm excited to try the next difficulty. Yeah, you sound like you're already a Jupiter Hell pro. Um, now, I mean, do you think that your previous roguelike experience has really contributed to how fast you've picked up this game? Or do you think that in general it's it's more easily accessible than than some of the other harder roguelikes? It, it's both. Um, it, the, the game's mechanics are pretty simple and straightforward, even though there's like a lot of depth to them once you get into them. So as far as picking it up, um, you'll be able to understand how things work. Um, everything's pretty transparent to the player for the most part. So I do like that. There's not, there's not this like artificial difficulty there. So people will be able to start playing and learning and getting further. Um, but yeah, it would be, it, it's undeniable that having like past roguelike experience definitely would help me or had helped me and would help other people um, from playing the game. Um, just understanding how, uh, you know, playing on a, a turn-based tile grid works and how consumables should be used and how you should approach like procedurally generated games and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and managing like health as a resource and that kind of thing are, are all things that will apply to this. So I think a lot of, there's a lot of fundamental roguelike skill that is transferable between like pretty much any roguelike game. That definitely applies here. That is one of the great parts of the genre. If you played one of the roguelikes and you've gotten pretty decent at it, 
chances are you're going to be pretty decent at all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one other thing that I thought was interesting about that run is that there's a mod called Auto Calibrate, which I thought was pretty bad, and a lot of the people in the community think was pretty bad, but I ended up putting it as my choice on two weapons that run. Whoa. So, like, and I, I like chose it over other things. Like I thought it was like my, probably my best option given like what was available. Um, so I, I guess that changed my mind on that a bit. Um, it, it did have a place, and what that does is. It's called auto calibration. So you have to kill 50 enemies before it works. So that's like part of the thing is <laughs> okay. like, I'm not going to slap this on a gun that I'm probably going to grow out of later. Right. Um, but once you do that, it basically gives you two bonuses for the price of one mod slot. Um, it helps your, your range. And it also gives you a d- flat damage bonus, which is pretty nice. Okay. So if you, you know, find a gun that you want to stick with for quite some time, you slap this bad boy on there, you can actually make it better than a gun that didn't choose this mod and instead went a different route. Yep, exactly. So that was kind of cool. Interesting that that's uh, you know, not been thought to be a great mod by the rest of the community. I wonder why. I, I just think that that amount of time they have to invest into it makes it not amazing. But if you find a good gun early, okay. um, it, it can be pretty good. That's fun. That's really cool. Yep. I, I like when when your perspective on like a specific like thing can be changed like that. So... And that was a cool experience for me. When you when you find the the right place for a niche item or mechanic, it it feels really good to actually put it to use and see it benefit you in a way that you normally wouldn't experience. Hundred percent agreed, and such a good feeling. Um, so yeah, that was my experience with Jupiter Hell, um, and I feel like it was a really fun journey so far, and. Uh, it was pretty cool. Like after every game, I was able to like pinpoint at least one thing that I learned, and then um, just you know actively try to implement it into my next game. And I slowly, progressively, like have gotten a lot better and seen like clear improvement. And I'm and that journey's not over. There's a lot of things that I still haven't interacted with or learned. So I'm excited to see what comes next. Yeah, I think that's an important part of roguelikes in general. Is um, you know when you when you win a game or lose a game, either or really identify why you lost or why you were successful and pull out those bits and pieces and, and use them in your next run to make sure that you, you know, can do the same thing again or avoid the issues that caused you problems in the past. It's a, it, it, it's a feeling of the player progressing rather than the character progressing. And I mean, I personally love that. So uh, yeah, it sounds like Jupiter hell would be, would be, Right up my alley. Uh, I'm definitely excited to give it a try in the future. Um, I, I loved its predecessor, and it sounds like a lot of love was put into this by the Jupiter Hell team, which is really, really cool to see. Yeah, you'll you'll like it. Um, definitely check it out when you get a chance. All right. Well, those are some uh, really fun conversations so far. Uh, this is where we had planned to talk about our main topic, but since our early conversations have gone on so long, and those are some really splendid discussions i think we're going to delay them until another episode you know what's funny is me and ntf started planning out this this episode and we already split it up into two episodes uh, (laughs) because we knew we were going to go on too long as we were starting outlining stuff and (laughs) and now even with our single episode outline we're cutting out like the main part of it which is funny but i think it might uh work pretty well as uh, another part so um, sometime in the next month, I'll get back with MTF and we will have another great conversation like this. Um, and we'll do another uh, episode here with him as a guest. 
Our topic that we're planning on discussing, if you just want a little teaser, is what we love about roguelikes. Um, and we've put a lot of prep into it, so I think there's we've been thinking about why we really love roguelikes. So I think it's going to be a great conversation, and I can't wait till we get back to it. Um, but that will be for another episode because I'm sure that is that's going to be a meaty topic, and uh, we're already running along here, so I don't want to do another three hour episode if we can help it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think uh, I think we did give a little bit of a teaser as to some of the topics we're going to cover in in the discussions. So you know. Get they'll get your toes wet, right? <laughs> as as we were talking, we actually hit, we hit on some of our 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 favorite things that we were gonna directly mention, like many times during those conversations. So, um, I don't know if you're an astute listener, maybe you can uh, guess what kind of things we're gonna talk about uh, next time. But <laughs> I'll leave that for an exercise for the listener, and we're gonna move on to listener mail. Um, this is a segment that I'm going to be referring to as the mail demon. And that's just a fun thing from NetHack. Um, when you're playing on a server, people can actually write you messages when they're watching you. And a a mail demon shows up and gives you mail. <laughs> and it's an actual in-game scroll that you can read. And it gives you a message. And you could you could actually have conversations with people on the server um, through these male demons. So I think this is an appropriate way to, um, to name this segment. And I'm, I, so whenever we're talking about the male demon, that's when we're going to be, um, reading listener questions and comments essentially. So we're going to, we're going to get to the male demon and read some scrolls here. I'm excited. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I'm really happy that people wrote in again, if you want to write in, um, to any comments or questions, uh, we'd love to incorporate them on the air. Um, if you don't want that, just let me know and we won't bring them on the air, but uh, you can go to tonehack.net slash contact and you'll get a form that I can, I can read and I can respond back to you. And that's the best way to do it right now. So I'll read some of the stuff we got in after our first episode last week. Um, so this first one, uh, Christopher says loved episode one of the podcast, especially the board game discussion. If you guys love Dominion, I highly recommend that you check out David Serlin's Puzzle Strike and its expansion Shadows. It was inspired directly by Dominion's deck building, but here it's been transformed into a tournament fighting game system played with a bag of chips. The strategy space is enormous, games are typically nail-bitingly close, and the chips are so satisfying to play with compared to cards. Hands down, it's my favorite 1v1 board game. You can't go wrong with the physical edition, but check it out on Steam if you want a cheaper option to start. Thanks for the great show. And thank you for writing in, Christopher. And that sounds like it is right up my alley. I'm definitely going to be checking that out mm-hmm. when I get some time. Um, I might even see if um, Luxadream, who we were chatting with Dominion uh, last week about, wants to get in uh, a game of that or check it out with me. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds very fun. I, I particularly love card games in general. Uh, I think a lot of card games kind of mimic a lot of the fun parts of roguelikes, uh, just in a uh, more consumable fashion, at least as far as time goes. So, you know, any more strategy games that involve using cards for combat systems and things like that, they just sound like a complete blast. And I'm I'm so happy to hear the space is growing. Yeah, the the chip system actually reminds me a lot of um, Unexplored 2 and their fortune system, which is basically you're pulling... Um, chips with like a result from a bag, like a, a pool of items. So it's it's a bit right. of a deck, but it, they're not like traditional cards. Um, and it's like a smaller like pool of things. But um, mm-hmm. I, I linked actually in the show notes last week to an article about how they came up with that system and stuff. And um, this kind of reminds me of that, just the idea of a bag of chips instead of a deck of cards. 
Um, but yeah, this sounds like a really cool game. So I, I'm actually, I'm definitely going to check this out. So maybe uh, once I get a chance to see this, maybe I'll even talk about it on the show at some point. So I got um, other mail in. So Kevin writes, greetings, awesome podcast. I really enjoyed listening to it. Uh, the best of luck to you. I've dipped my toes into roguelikes, including Tome, Brogue, and Golden Crone Hotel. You seem to have an enormous amount of experience with roguelikes, and I was wondering if you would please share with me your favorite games. I would really appreciate it. Cheers. Uh, signed, Kevin. Uh, thanks for writing, Kevin, and I appreciate the feedback there. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And yeah, this is an awesome question, and we were planning on uh, discuss- discussing this in depth um, as a like a part two with me and MTF after we talk about what we love about roguelikes. We'll talk about some of the games and um, what we like about them. Um, but for now, we'll just read off some of the games that we we enjoy and the the short list that I made so far. Uh, definitely incomplete. Um, but I like Brogue a lot, Golden Crone Hotel, Cogmind, uh, Jupiter Hell, which may, might be a honeymoon phase since that one just kind of came out, but I'm really enjoying <laughs> it. It's quickly climbing those ranks. Um, NetHack, of course. And then I put Hack on here. That's spelled H-A-Q-U-E. Uh, which might not be one that uh, people are too familiar with, but it's a it's a short game. It doesn't have like infinite replayability for a lot of people, like some of these other games do probably. Um, but it has a really cool aesthetic. Uh, I turn off the CRT effects, but even beyond that, the tiles and everything are really cool. The art style, yeah. And it's got like a a neat uh, narrative to it, um, and just like a really fun atmosphere. It doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, it's not like perfectly balanced or anything, but it's a, it's a really cool game and I'd, I'd recommend people check that one out. So I'm going to put a hack on there as well. Yeah. I also quite enjoyed that game, although I'm not sure I'd put it on my favorites list. Um, my list is, is a bit more traditional. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of the hack likes in general. Um, so, you know, while I would love to say net hack, I think that some variants have taken the game quite a bit further in terms of quality of life and all that. So I'm going to say Fick Hack. Uh, that's spelled F-I-Q Hack, uh, made by uh, one of my good friends and developers. And it is the developer Fick. Uh, it's a fantastic version of NetHack that I think is a lot easier to get into for your uh, your average player, because uh, NetHack can be somewhat opaque at times. Uh, so Fick Hack, uh, classic ADOM, um, used to be my favorite game of all time. Uh, although that has somewhat gone by the wayside because I think Cogmind has taken that throne, if you could not already tell. Um, so those would definitely be my top three. Uh, but I also want to give a shout out to Infra Arcana, um, which is a rather unique roguelike in that it's, uh, it's horror themed, like Eldritch horror. Uh, so it really plays on, on the mental aspect of like dungeon diving when all of the monsters around you are, are almost, you almost can't deal with them and they're constantly chasing you and coming after you. So it has this really spooky feeling to it. I really enjoy that about it. So I, I think that would be, would be the main list that, uh, that I would be comfortable with giving away right now. Yeah. I actually haven't played Adom or Infra Arcana. Um, so I need to definitely check those out. There's, yeah. So Infra Arcana is one that I actually want to try and get into soon-ish. It's been towards the top of my list for a while. So I'm slowly chipping through my list. I like to really dive deep when I start a new roguelike if I enjoy it. So um, I might only play one every couple of months if I really like it. So I'm in my Jupiter Hell phase right now, which I finally got from that list. Um, but yeah, Infra Arcana yep. I'm going to have to do sometime soon. 
Yeah, I I, uh, I got coerced into playing it once on stream uh, by a, a player that I mentioned earlier in the cast, and uh, I just had such a blast with it. I actually won my first game ever, uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was just really crazy to see how it all played out, and and the chat was going wild, and I'm sure that added to the experience, but it, it's a really tactically difficult game uh, that. It, it, it's just it, it feels like a unique experience compared to other roguelikes it's it's definitely worth checking out you stream that right. like till late in the morning didn't you <laughs> oh yeah till like four in the morning or something like that because <laughs> i remember um, i think you were wrapping up a cogmine stream or something and i was watching and then you're like i'm gonna start in for arcana i kind of wanted to check it out but it was like late over here um, and i'm a few hours later right. than you in my time zone but um I, I saw that you actually like played like a whole game, and I was like, "Now that's like extremely even in your time zone." But that that just means you oh, must have yeah. been having a, a lot of fun there. Well, hey, I you know, like you said, I was just finishing up a different stream, so I wasn't even expecting to play that much longer. So that's why I was like, oh, "All right, I'll check out Infra Arcana. I'll probably just die early, and then I'll end the stream." And then that never happened. <laughs> it just kept going, and I kept loving it. And before you know it, it's four in the morning. Yeah, it says a lot when a game can really just grip you like that right away and, and just like oh, you don't yeah. want to put it down. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, to add to the spooky atmosphere, it, it has not a soundtrack, but like amazing sound effects and ambient atmosphere music that goes alongside it. So, like, you know, at three in the morning, you're starting to hear some of these noises and some of the way the sounds are, 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 you know, appearing at you and it gets, it gets a little frightening. You're a little like, Ooh, what's happening here? This is, this is kind of scary. It's uh it's really fun. I really enjoyed the, the entire feeling of it. So I definitely want to get more into that in the future. Yeah. It's cool. Actual like audio is something that a lot of roguelikes don't take a, don't implement a lot of for various good reasons too. Um, but it's really cool when a, a game can implement that and do it well. So that's really cool. I can't wait to check that out myself. Yeah, and you know, I do think ADOM would be something that that players that can appreciate NetHack would really enjoy, uh, given that it is a hack like. It is just about as opaque as ADOM or as NetHack is, but it takes a more like story focused approach to the gameplay. Uh, and while it sacrifices some uh, interactions between you know items and different mechanics. It really expands upon like world building and like all of the different branches and quests and like ultimate end game that goes with it. I think it's a really fun experience uh, and like the corruption system that's a part of it is something that you don't see in other other roguelikes. So if if you if you love NetHack and you've never given Adom a shot, I highly recommend it. Although I will say playing in in ASCII is it's really hard. There's so many different characters to to remember. Uh, I, I'm a tiles player only. I, I couldn't do it. So that that would be another recommendation for me. Awesome. Yeah. So those are some of our favorite uh, roguelikes. And uh, Kevin, I like, actually had listed some of mine and on there. So I think you're off to a good start there. So hopefully you or anyone else, we've um, given some inspiration for other stuff to check out. Um, all right, so I got one more letter we're, we're going to read here today. Um, so this one is from Winnie. Uh, they say, Hi, Tone. I listened to episode one of Ascension Run. This is a podcast for me. I am very amazed about the NetHack speedrun scene taking off. I must eat my words as I scoffed when I saw people publicly doing speedrun attempts a couple of years ago. But I must eat my words. I am uh, peached to be wrong about that. NetHack speedrunning adds a lot more to the game. I have one question that might be cool in a podcast. For folks with RSI, what do other net hackers such as yourself do to mitigate any repetitive strain issues? 
Do you have any special keyboard preferences or configurations? Thanks, and looking forward to listening in on the second episode, Winnie. Uh, Winnie on the hard-fought leaderboards. They sign that as. Um, yeah, uh, don't worry about not believing in the NetHack speedrun scene. I, I Even Luxadream didn't... <laughs> know what was gonna <laughs> be possible there and i don't think any of us foresaw what happened so uh, that that is fine you're <laughs> we were all very surprised by that pleasantly surprised uh, but yeah this is actually a really interesting question um it's kind of that one of those things that uh people in games don't talk about i was actually surprised to see it but really glad that you you brought this up because it's such like a important thing and a, a, a good thing to discuss here and yeah, my my experience with this is pretty uh, limited. I just from actually for like working in like an office environment and then spending a lot of my time on a computer again and like at a desk when I'm at home, um, I just like looked up some basic ergonomics for myself. And um, if you just like do your own research, you'll find things. But there's like some things I didn't know, like having your like armrest like level with your desk and letting your keyboard be flat and like having your monitor, like usually like, I think you want the top of it, like kind of level with your eyes and stuff like that are things that I wasn't doing. And I think making adjustments like that has helped me. Um, I'm not a doctor, so do your like own research there, but those are kind of the kind of simple things that, that I do. And, and actually um, back last year when I started working from home a bit and realizing I'd be sitting at my desk a lot more than normal. I, I was actually having some back pains and stuff and I, I bought like a, a proper office chair. Um, and I, that a lot of that went away and I haven't had like nearly as many issues, um, to that extent. So I think that helped a lot too. So, um, having the, the right kind of office chair can go a long way too. So those are different things you can research and, uh, look at in on that end. And then, um, so as MTF alluded to earlier, he's actually had some experience with this recently. So um, I'm going to let him have the floor to, to kind of share any advice that he's learned, which is going to be a lot more or better than the things I have. And he might even correct some of the stuff I said. I don't know if all that was actual proper, but uh, <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead, MTF. What are, uh, what kind of advice yeah. do you have for, for Winnie and others on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, I have a little bit too much experience with this topic uh, in the last year. But, you know, if I can use my situation to help anybody else, I would be more than happy to do so. Uh, I think everything you said, Tone, was, was pretty spot on. Uh, the one thing that I would change, that I have changed, is uh, I actually don't use any armrests at all on my chair because I find it tends to, you know, make you okay with leaning forward on those armrests. Uh, whereas, as I was about to say, my number one tip for avoiding repetitive stress injury and, in fact, recovering from them is to focus on your posture. This is not something that I thought I would ever be saying. Uh, if you know me in real life, I did not have great posture leading up to this and haven't for years. But uh, in early March of this year, that all came back to bite me when I really started to experience some pretty significant pain in my hands. So, uh, you know, when you are using a computer for a long period of time, uh, you know, I, I'm a software developer and clearly an avid gamer. Uh, I spent a lot of time at the computer and a lot of time in a chair. Uh, you really, really, really need to focus on your posture because it is way too easy to get engrossed in whatever it is you're doing and forget about what your body is doing physically, like how you are sitting structurally, uh, and, you know, even if your body isn't giving you pain right away, 
that doesn't mean you're not stressing the muscles that are keeping you, you know, sitting straight or, or sitting at all. Um, if you continue to stress them over a long period of time, you know, every day for years, you're going to end up with problems that are going to take quite a bit of effort to reverse and, and come back from, you know, I, I personally, um, I had some spinal issues where my spine was starting to straighten out, which is bad. You're supposed to have some curve in your spine. Uh, and, and that was greatly contributing to, to my hand issues, uh, as well as some shoulder nerve compression issues that developed alongside of that. So the problem with not keeping good posture is that, you know, everyone's individual, everyone's different, but you end up stressing your body in a way that it can't really deal with over a long period of time. And uh, let me just tell you from personal experience, if you get to that point because you ignored your body for too long, you're going to regret it. And you're going to have a, a hard road ahead of you recovering. Uh, I can tell you that it is possible to recover from it. I, I am actually feeling better today than I have felt in about six months. But uh, if you take anything from this, it's focus on your posture and don't ignore your body when it tells you there are issues. Um, some slightly you know, lesser tips that I think are still important are, you know, obviously, get good ergonomics. Uh, I have a split keyboard, um, which I think is you know, really helpful. I have a vertical mouse. Uh, because if you have a normally situated mouse, you end up moving your wrist from side to side quite a bit. Whereas if it's vertical, um, you're, you're just in a more comfortable, relaxed position at, at all times. Uh, I think that's very beneficial and doesn't really affect us roguelike players too much. Um, I recommend getting a great chair. I mean, if you're in the chair all day, it's worth it. It's kind of like getting a good bed. You know, you're going to use it all the time and uh, you will not regret it down the line in terms of like how you feel if the chair supports you effectively. And then my, my final ergonomic tip would be get a standing desk if you can. Um, you know, sitting, no matter how you put together your ergonomics, it's not good for you to do day in and day out. Um, if you can get a, scan, a standing desk, then you can spend at least some of your time standing and and you know get your body moving around that's going to go really far in terms of like preventing these issues where you're structurally stressing your muscles and and the rest of your body so you know mix in standing every once in a while uh get yourself one of those nice uh, uh rubber foot pads that you can stand on so you're not standing on like a hard concrete floor uh when you do so and basically i like to do about 50 percent standing 50 percent sitting every day and uh, following all of these tips, I have uh, noticed a dramatic improvement in, well, not only my, my pain situation, but also how I feel on a, on a day, daily basis. So those would be my major tips for you. And uh, I wish you luck in, in recovering from your issues. I'm really sorry to hear that you're dealing with that. That is some really amazing advice there, MTF. Uh, I think it was really fortuitous that you happened to be on the show when this question came in. Absolutely. I definitely don't have um, as much expertise or experience here. So um, I'm glad you could help here. And yeah, I think it's a, a lot of people may not just realize like how you can get these injuries from, you know, not really doing like anything that feels too physical. Um, but it's, it's mm -hmm. really important. So um I'd recommend that everyone just take a step back to like see what their their you know daily situation is if they do use computers a lot and uh, make sure they're doing everything that they can do to to improve that.
you know, it was really funny. I'll, I'll just share a little tidbit with you guys. Um, my, my physical therapist actually told me that there are two types of people that he mostly sees with my types of injuries. Those two types of people are one, office workers, and two, professional sports players. Huh. <laughs> it, it turns out that we both encounter the same stresses on our bodies when we don't maintain proper posture and in, in the sports player forms, proper physical form as they're doing the things that they do. So, uh, you know, just because you feel like you're sitting behind a desk and you're not, you're not doing too much physical activity, that doesn't mean you're not really stressing your body out. And it, it's, it can be hard to notice that even occurring. So just pay attention to it and, uh, and you'll be a lot better off than, than if you don't. Yeah, that's absolutely wild. That really puts things into context. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So that's all the the mail we have today. And uh, those are some fantastic uh, comments and questions. Uh, super happy to um, be able to read those. And you guys are awesome for writing in and, and, and sharing all that with us. So uh, if anyone else wants to write in, again, it's tonehack.net slash contact. You'll get a form and we will uh, try to incorporate them into the show. And um, even if it's not something for the show, I've been taking all the feedback I've been seeing uh, very seriously. Like I said uh, at the beginning of the first episode, uh, this this format is flexible, and I want to. This is going to be a process. This whole podcast um, with between the listener and between me and the guest, and it's going to continue to evolve and get better. So, I'm really looking forward to seeing how where we go from here. As am I. And with that, we're going to wrap up. So um, MTF, do you want to tell people um, where they can find you, if they want to contact you, or if you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like I said, I, I am one of the admins of the r slash roguelikes subreddit Discord. So uh, if you want to find me in that Discord doing mod things, uh, I'm sure Tone will put a link to that discord, get just an invite there. So you can guys could come hang out and, and, and chat with me and, and tone and many other amazing roguelike players. I mean, if, if you like roguelikes and you're not in the discord, you really should come join because it's an awesome community. And I mean, honestly, it's, it's part of what makes this genre so special to me. Um, also I, uh, I do, or I used to do a lot of streaming and I'm really hoping to get back to it soon. Uh, within the next couple months or so. So, you know, come check me out at twitch.tv slash Monday, Tuesday, Friday. Uh, you know, I stream a ton of Cogmind, but I try to cover other roguelikes as well. I have wins from, I don't know, you know, six, seven different games at this point. Obviously, Infra Arcana is one of the ones I talked about. Uh, Fick Hack is in there. NetHack in general. Uh, Adom. Uh, I think I got a Cave of Cud win in there. Uh, just lots and lots of roguelike content that I try to play at a high level and uh, I try to explain it in, in the best way that I possibly can. You know, today was probably a, a sneak peek of how I try to, to talk about the games as I play them. So, uh, yeah, if you if you enjoyed what you heard here, come check me out in the Discord or on Twitch and I hope to see you there. Awesome. Yeah, I'm a, I chat daily on the, the roguelikes Discord, so I can definitely second that. I will definitely post a link um, to both of those down in the show notes for the episode. And I'm also a frequent viewer of uh, your streams when when you were streaming. So a yep. uh, very talented uh, roguelike player and streamer. So I think people listening to this would enjoy that. Um, and I am Tone, and you can find my YouTube, Twitch channel, uh, Twitter, all my links um, at the head banner at tonehack.net. 
Um, so you can go there. Actually, you may have found this podcast on that page, so you can probably just look up. And <laughs> yeah, thanks again, everyone, for uh, tuning in. This has been a blast. And I'll see you all next time on Ascension Run. <laughs>